Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, recently joined Libertarian Party Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Little L Libertarian Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Little L Libertarian Swingle? Well, funny you should ask, John. Uh, Today is our first episode looking at topics in political theology and verses that revolve around uh, politics, perhaps even some ones that are misunderstood and need to be put put back into context, funny enough. Um, (laughs) If only we had a podcast where that's what we did. (laughs) Right, yeah. Well, you know, I think we chose these names today uh, because... When talking about this, it's it's good to get your cards on the table uh, and, you know, like establish the perspective you're coming from. Something we'll talk about a little later today is how everybody imports their own biases into reading the Bible from their political perspective. And so I thought it'd be good before we say anything about any Bible verses to just, you know, clear the air. And so for me, the little L libertarian (laughs) is uh, my way of saying, yes, uh, my political beliefs would best be described as libertarian, but please, please do not lump me in with the libertarian party, which is kind of a raging dumpster fire. Um, that's, that's my, (laughs) that's my best way of putting it. Um, although, uh, perhaps you, uh, you know, beg to differ because you just recently joined. What do you have to say for yourself, John? Yes, yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> so as my name would suggest, I did just recently register with the Libertarian Party here in Oregon. Um, and uh, I agree with you that there is a a degree to which the Libertarian is kind of a dumpster fire, um, you know, just <laughs> sort of full of people who... Um, well, they, they, they care more about just being able to smoke weed than uh, anything having to do with, uh, uh, you know, meaningful categories of uh, uh, political liberty. Uh, <laughs> Smoking um, but, weed and begging to be liked by progressives. That was the Libertarian Party <laughs> in 2020. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically, basically. But um, but there's been a lot of uh, grassroots movement in the Libertarian Party recently of people who are, I would say, much closer to kind of the Ron Paul kind of libertarian if people are sort of familiar with ron paul and his platform at all um but basically there's there's this uh a new wing of the libertarian party uh that is uh sort of been gaining a lot of traction over the last year uh and they are they are excellent um and so specifically i've joined the libertarian party to be part of this it's called the mises caucus if anybody is um interested in that uh, but they uh, um, sort of this this party is is or this wing of the party is much more um, uh, interested in actually trying to pursue the um, culturally relevant aspects of liberty, if if I should put it that way. Um, and um, and so I decided recently that I was um, basically what it came down for came down to for me was uh, I realized it's it's way easier to criticize things than it is to be constructive about things. Uh, and that I had for a long time just been very critical of politics without actually providing any uh, like meaningful, constructive uh, feedback in, in the area of politics. And so I decided that I needed to make a change. Uh, and so there wasn't a, a county affiliate in the, the county of Oregon that I was living in. And so I was like, well, OK, maybe I can join the Libertarian Party, help start up a county affiliate and start making some actual positive change in my community rather than just griping online about uh, uh, my disagreements with the current political system. 
Well, we'll also get to talk about that a little bit today, about the importance of, you know, um, good works in the Christian life can also mean political engagement, not for everybody necessarily, but it is one, you know, means of it. So that's good to hear that you're being involved. Um, yeah, I mean, I probably will end up, will end up joining at some point because like you said, uh, you know, this is, there's more history to this than it really fits on our podcast, but the, the Libertarian Party is definitely uh, being overtaken by actual libertarians right now. <laughs> um, it is happening <laughs> rapidly and quickly, and it's kind of inevitable at this point, which makes me excited. Um, so, so yeah, so that might be a direction I end up heading in, but, but at least for now, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to steer clear until I see where the winds are heading. Um, but nevertheless, I think, uh, both you and I are, are fairly on the same page as far as politics goes, but but not all our listeners probably are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who would describe themselves more as conservatives, perhaps even some progressives, um, to which I say, please stick with us. First of all, if you're a conservative, I think you're going to agree with like 99% of what we're about to say over the next few episodes. Um, we'll be doing, I think, five episodes on, on these topics. Uh, I think you'll find much to agree with. Of course, when talking about politics, it's it's necessary to make some reference to current events. Um, so, you know, if you disagree with our opinion on one thing or another, uh, beg, you know, bear with us. The the main reason we're doing this is not to <laughs> to talk about politics, but to talk about theology, honestly, and to talk about these Bible verses yes. that are misunderstood. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, that's our bias. You know, that's... yeah, totally. We are. This is not. Uh, I'll say it this way. This is not part of uh, this episode. Is not part of my political activism. Uh, <laughs> this is part of my biblical activism. <laughs> uh, amen to that. And I think, it, again, as we will be talking about, there are um, there's a tendency among some to, I guess, over-Christianize their political standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, well, and there's also the temptation to under-Christianize it. So, uh, so we'll get into all of that. Our, our other meat for today will be... Um, will be five things we think Christians get wrong when approaching the topic of politics. And uh, our verse for today will be one we consider to be kind of foundational to understanding like a Christian view of authority, a Christian view of government, um, just foundational ethics uh, that'll help us guide us as we tackle some more controversial texts, uh, you know, like Romans 13 <laughs> and uh, g- give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We'll be tackling a few a few tricky topics uh, Today, we'll, we'll do some foundational stuff, though, that'll help us for the rest of the episodes. Uh, so, so let's dig into it. You ready for the meat, John? Yes, but before we do, uh, I do have one uh, uh, thing I should say up front, uh, and that is we uh, uh, Jeremy announced in his solo episode uh, uh, last time that I am now uh, recently uh, renewed in my fatherhood, uh, being blessed with a, a little daughter, um, and uh, she is actually a, uh, a guest on this podcast today. Uh, she is uh, uh, strapped uh, to me in a like a little baby carrier. Uh, and so you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm doing sort of the funny like parent dance thing, you know, where you just sort of like sway your hips back and forth to <laughs> keep the baby asleep. So uh, so she's sleeping right now and we're hopeful she's going to stay asleep for the the whole episode here. But if you hear any gurgles or mutters or anything like that, uh, it is it is not me, but my my little newborn girl uh, who is giving her own commentary on this Bible verse. Of the two things that I can think that would be strapped to a person's chest, that's definitely the better one, John. <laughs> You're going to wake her up, dude. You're going to wake her up. 
such a terrible joke. I love it. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's a fantastic joke. I got you laughing uncontrollably, man. Oh gosh, that's awesome. That's good. Oh. I'm working on my own dad jokes. Look, I got I got my yeah. second one coming yes. in February. So we. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> All right, so so let's let's dig into the meat before this uh, derails any further. It's time for the meat. So the verse that we are going to be tackling today uh, comes from the book of Matthew uh, in the 20th chapter, verse 27. Uh, and it says, uh, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Yeah, well, this is kind of like a, um, a famous concept in Matthew especially, and the teachings of Jesus in general. I actually referenced it last week uh, in the solo episode, but um, this this theme of the ironic reversal in, in Matthew, uh, where Jesus kind of takes something you might think would be intuitive and turns it completely on its head. So we have, you know, in, in Matthew 5, we've got the mourners, those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger will be filled. The meek will inherit the earth, not the strong, but the meek. Uh, and, and there's this idea of like Jesus's kingdom sort of turns everything all topsy turvy from what we expect. And, uh, this, this verse very much, I think, stands in the line of, of that, uh, that sort of tradition that Jesus, Jesus is all about. Uh, what, I mean, can you think of any others, John? Yeah, I think of, um, in the book of Matthew, there's the, the, the section, um, which happens like right after, uh, Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler. Um, and you know, Jesus, he, he says to his disciples, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Um, and, uh, well, and that's like right after the rich young ruler passage, right? That the, this guy's like deciding not to follow Jesus because of his wealth that's holding him back. Right. Yes. And so Jesus is kind of like responding to that. And P- Peter, Peter's like, <laughs> he says, we've left everything to follow you. What's there going to be for us? Like, what's the reward here? And, <laughs> and Jesus kind of interestingly, he doesn't like kind of slap Peter around for wondering what the reward will be. He, he's pretty clear. He's, he says like, um, you guys who follow me, you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> like you, you're going to, you're going to inherit everything, you know, um, by following me, like the meek will inherit the earth. It's a similar concept, right? So those who are last, those who give up everything, their wealth and their privilege to follow Christ will, will gain heavenly wealth and, and, you know, pri- privilege, prestige, etc. right? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and then even just a few verses, uh, uh, later in the beginning, I think it's then chapter 20. Uh, where Jesus gives the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, so this is the one where, uh, you know, there's this uh, uh, person who owns a vineyard and they, he, you know, he goes out to hire laborers at the beginning of the day for, uh, you know, a certain wage. And then he get, hires more laborers later in the day and then later in the day. And then like, you know, an hour before the day ends, he goes and hires more people. And then he proceeds to pay all of the laborers the same wage. Um, and And Jesus actually concludes by saying, kind of repeating this idea you know, the last will be first and the first will be last. Um, and so, again, it's sort of this uh, a bit of a reversal that, you know, the people who were uh, hired last, uh, it, well, in the story, they even actually get paid first. Um, but but it's sort of this idea of, uh, um, you know, even those who don't have much in this world will be rewarded greatly in the next. Right. And of course, the, the early laborers are the Jews who consider themselves to have been epic followers of God's law. You know, and then the ones who are hired last are, are you know, 
Gentiles or, or those who were outside the kingdom, you know, perhaps Jews who were being disobedient to God's law, but they're invited to come to the vineyard and labor and they get paid the same amount. So it's kind of like those who are there first have this prestige that gets turned on its head because the, the labor or the owner rather of the vineyard is so generous and gives to all the same reward, you know? So the thief on the cross who's dying and says to Jesus, you know, to, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That guy gets the same privilege as missionaries who labor for 50 years and get speared to death. <laughs> right, like, right, or Zechariah <laughs> or Anna in the temple who have you know spent their entire lives waiting for the Messiah, and it's only at the very end that they see the consolation of Israel. Right, which is not to say that there aren't gradations of reward in heaven, sort of a different topic, but just the point being that you know, all the laborers get paid, <laughs> but these ones who, <laughs> these ones who are hired first are like, they grumble about it. They're upset, you know? And so, and you know, that parallels the, uh, the, the Jews who are upset about, you know, the, the grace being offered to everybody. So, so it's kind of this interesting reversal. Um, so you sort of have with the rich young ruler, you have wealth being turned on its head, right? It's actually those who give up wealth who will gain it in the heavenly kingdom mm -hmm. And with the laborers, it's like those who are here first, those who have like privilege because of when they got here, they might be the last ones paid. Right? So they right. might be last in the kingdom. So then immediately after that story, I find it really interesting that Jesus takes the disciples aside. It says that it's as they're going up to Jerusalem. And he says that in Jerusalem, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So this is, that's verses 17 through 19. So immediately after this, the last will be first, the first will be last. Jesus describes himself as this figure who is about to be persecuted and in a very real sense, be the last, you know, but he will be raised on the third day. So it's almost like this prediction Jesus has of his, you know, the events that are about to unfold uh, upon him, you know, Jesus is sort of using that as a, an object lesson for his teaching. Uh, in, a, in a very right. real sense. And, and, right, and that would be a, and this is also a direct reversal of what the disciples are kind of expecting that is going to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. You know, the disciples sort of have this conception of the, the Messiah as, you know, this person who's going to come in, kick out the Romans, you know, sit on David's seat and, you know, sort of rule this political kingdom seated in Jerusalem that's, uh, you know, basically like reset up David's empire again is, is kind of the picture that they have in their head. And so Jesus describing of like, oh, no, it's, uh, you know, the son of man, he's going to be handed over, condemned to die, delivered to the Gentiles, flogged and mocked is this is a, a, the exact reversal of what they would expect would happen with when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem. Right. Yeah. It's like Jesus is taking his own advice. <laughs> right? The last will be first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he, you know, he's, and as we're about to see um, in, as we get closer to the verse that we are examining today in, in this chapter, Jesus is really using like himself as the excellent, most ultimate example of the principle he's teaching, you know, um, and his death on the cross is that great event, which, which demonstrates just how much Jesus is the last who becomes the first, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So that being said, let's let's uh, move on to this. Uh, now that we read through verse nineteen, kind of with the, the vineyard workers and Jesus giving this prediction. Now let's kind of read to um, the this 
verse that we're looking at today, uh, there's this whole story here. Um, so, so coming in on verse 20. So then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so that's James and John are the sons of Zebedee, their mother uh, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, so that's the other 10 disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that takes us to the end of verse 28 and kind of the end of this, this segment of scripture. That's where we'll close our, our context <laughs> examination for the day. Um, and what do you think, John? I, for me, I, I, when I look at like the rich young ruler in chapter 19 up to this moment, it feels like even though there's different stories here that Matthew's trying to weave these together into a unified theme. No, no, totally. And, and I think that's kind of what we were highlighting a little bit as we went through some of the background context before we got to this verse is all of the stories really seem to be hitting on the same idea of you know, not just like reversing expectations, but kind of setting up this contrast between the way things are here and now and the way things are, you know, we could expect them to be sort of in the kingdom of God itself. So, you know, and, and in here we even get this, uh, like th that that's even sort of the direct application that we're getting here where the, the question is like, you know, will this, you know, will James and John sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? You know, and so then Jesus is kind of giving this answer about like, well, what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Like, if you want to be great, you need to be the slave. You need to be the servant. And so it's it's again kind of setting up this contrast, which is really consistent with the contrast that we've seen just over the last like chapter and a half. Yeah. And I think there's almost a different nuance to this one, almost an intensification, because at first he's saying like the last will be first, the first will be last. And he's asking the rich young ruler to sort of give up everything, right? He's asking, um, mm -hmm. or, and then when he does the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, it's almost like it's just matter of fact. The last will be first. There's nothing you can do about it, right? Last or first, first or last. Oh, oh, like those those who are in the situation of being last will be in the situation of first. Right, which is kind of similar to the idea of, you know, those who are um, mourning will be comforted, right? It's like, you don't ask to be mourning, but... But if you're in that circumstance, the Lord, you know, will raise your station, right? Uh, and that's kind of the idea. Right. Whereas here, it's almost like if you want to be the, the greatest, you've got to make yourself the slave. Right? <laughs> like he's, he's, he's challenging right, right. us like, okay, you want to be great? You know, James and John? Cool. All right. Uh, be the slave. <laughs> you know? uh, so, so like yes. you need to, to make this your position if you want to reach that exalted position in the future. Uh, which is a little mm -hmm. more intense. Of course, the rich young ruler can give up everything. Um, but in that case, then he would become the last <laughs> before he would become the first again. Right. Whereas this is sort of like, 
you know, I don't think Jesus is saying literally to enslave yourself to anyone. He's saying that you need to take the lowly position of one who serves others. Right. Um, right. And, and in a, in a very particularly extreme sense, because the, the word doulos Greek for slave, you know, it, it means you're, you know, <laughs> you have to obey what others say. I mean, it's, it's a low position. Um, right. So, yeah. So I think that's kind of what's going on here is, is like, now it's on you guys who want to be great. Did you listen to what I just said about how I'm going to die? Can you drink the <laughs> cup I'm going to drink? You know, and can, can you take this suffering? And they're like, we can. <laughs> you know? And, and Jesus, it's interesting. He replies to them like, well, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna suffer for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he almost affirms it, you know, they're not going to be crucified with him, but they will suffer for him. But then he's like, you know, uh, these places belong to, to those my father's appointed. But, but here's the deal. You can be great, right? Just be the slave. <laughs> it's really crazy yes, how Jesus yeah. teaches well, his disciples. It's really, I don't know. It's just excellent. Yeah. And, and, and actually, Jeremy, I had a question for you about this because I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, one thing that's always stood out to me about this story. So the, you know, Jesus talking about, um, you know, he says, uh, you know, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, for me, that's sort of always you know, made these connections of, of, uh, the, you know, this notion of like the cup of God's wrath, which is, you know, uh, uh, like a symbol or an idea that, that, that happens a lot in the old Testament. And it's kind of being, I'm seeing it sort of being Matthew using that idea here, um, to say, you know, speaking of Christ's sufferings and his, and his passion that, you know, you know, that he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. Um, and and so he points that question to to James and John of like can you drink it and they say yes we can and and I've always wondered like do you think James and John like got the reference that Jesus is making there or like what like how do you imagine that they're like hearing Jesus's question to them Hmm yeah that's tough um I would have had to prepare for that question by looking at the trajectory <laughs> of the disciples understanding of Jesus's messiahship right. throughout Matthew. That's a more complicated question than I can answer off the top of my head because it really depends on how we read sure. the disciples here. I mean, it's interesting that the their mother seems to understand some things even though she gets kind of a light rebuke from Jesus. Um she seems to understand something of like when you go to your kingdom, right? Which I think she is still understanding something of like a triumph, but I don't know. To me I I read this as like you know, <laughs> I don't know. She understands that he's the rightful king, but maybe not that he's going to suffer to achieve that position. Um, and so that's why Jesus right. hits the ball back at her. Like, you know, are you able to drink that cup? And then they say, we are able. And I don't know. It just strikes me as they must understand something of what he's saying, because at this point they already have faced persecution. They already have faced hardship. Um, and so I would guess, right. although don't quote me on it, my my hunch would be they they obviously don't know the full meaning of that, but I think they are saying like we're going to suffer with you, um, and and I would say that like later, not too long from this point, um, you've got Peter saying you know if if I have to suffer and die with you, I'll never disown you, you know, uh, and so I right. think the disciples are starting to gain a consciousness of what they've gotten themselves into at this point. We're not too far from like you know <laughs> Jesus has just said they're going to Jerusalem where I'll be suffering, so. I right. mean, you know, I mean, the disciples are pretty slow sometimes, but I would hope they understood like to some degree, what, you know, what does the <laughs> word crucified mean? Well, I think they knew that, you know, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's my guess. 
Okay, yeah, I was just curious your thoughts on that. Um, it's something I've always wondered about. Yeah, it just seems so arrogant when they say it. But, you know, the funny thing is Jesus doesn't Jesus doesn't give this answer to them like, well, you want to be great? That's stupid. You should be a loser. You know, he doesn't give this kind of like, like <laughs> right. a defeatist a doormat mentality. This That's not what's going on here. It's, um, you know, he, he actually directly tells them how to get what they want. <laughs> yeah i i love that he he answers their question <laughs> like really directly it's just the complete opposite answer that they probably yeah. wanted to hear and counterintuitive right, yeah. to what they would think you know which is just genius i mean mm-hmm. so well uh genius jesus aside uh <laughs> i think that the <laughs> the ethic that we're hitting at here this this fundamental point about the kingdom of god that's being made is you cannot be the first in the kingdom unless you're at least willing to be the last in the kingdom of this age, right? So uh, yes. there's a contrast of, of those who, and hey, this ties in with last uh, episode with Lazarus, right? You in your lifetime received your good things, Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in anguish. And that's the, that's the idea right. here. It's like, you know, whatever you, the more you put your stock in the things of this kingdom that is now in, in rule, the, the less you will have in my kingdom, Jesus says. Um, yes. I think that's definitely the point. And, and the contrast of, right, and the contrast between this kingdom and the, the kingdom to come, I think is made even clearer oh. that we're, like, what is the analogy that Jesus uses or, or what's the connection? He says, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the, you know, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be with you. Um, or shall not be among you. And so so Jesus is even making the direct comparison between there are the kings and the kingdoms that exist now, and there is the kingdom... And there is the kingdom that uh, uh, you will be in in the future. You know, uh, it, it, you know, it shall not be so among you, like future tense. Well, there. and who will inherit that kingdom if not the little children that are making noises <laughs> right the sweet the sweet little kids <laughs> oh yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the kingdom ethic right who's who could be more incapable of achieving um authority and kingship than a child who can only express themselves in cries and yet those are the very people jesus says the kingdom belongs to <laughs> so yeah mm-hmm. it, it, there's definitely a reason we chose this passage to talk about politics uh you know like jesus is very explicitly explaining the differences of the of christian ethics versus the ethics of uh secular leadership and worldly leadership um of course the rulers of the gentiles is here a stand-in term for unbelievers right jesus is talking to to his jewish disciples and so at this point gentiles would have been you know a, a synonym for the unbelieving world more or less right where so now the, it would be right. non-christian the rulers who are not Christian lord it over their their subjects, right? That's kind of the that's yes. the how we would interpret this now. So so yeah so like you know the power and wealth and prestige in this age are coming to an end. You know why not give those up for power, wealth, and prestige in an unshakable kingdom that the Lord has promised we will inherit if we follow Him? Why have all the world's goods and forfeit your soul? you know, as Lazarus is carried to the heavenly riches, you know, and you're in anguish, right? Um, Why not put all of your Mm -hmm. investments in that kingdom instead of this one? That's the whole, the whole ethic of of Christ's kingdom. Anyone who refuses to do that is not fit for that kingdom. That's Jesus. Jesus is very, very clear about that. That's why the rich young ruler gets turned away and he goes away 
he's not fit for the kingdom because he loves his possessions more than the kingdom. So that's kind of the fundamental ethic we're hitting at here. One thing I would love to talk about, though, is this awesome verse 28. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve. And I love this idea of the person who suffers the most torment, the most anguish on in this life, becomes the ultimate ruler of the cosmos. <laughs> right? Like this, this idea of Jesus, this conquering king, and he conquers through suffering. Um, mm-hmm. I just love this. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, how, what are some things we could highlight, I guess, <laughs> about that here? We already talked yes. about a little bit about Jesus being the, the last who becomes the first. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, part of that in the immediate application here is that Jesus is, is offering himself as the ultimate example uh, that we should follow of, you know, making himself the, the servant uh, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, the one who suffers, the, this is, you know, connecting with the suffering servant that we see prophesied in Isaiah, that this is Jesus's role, that he is the one who suffers. And by that, he then, um, uh, becomes great. You know, he is then made great in the kingdom to come. In particular, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, the second chapter of Philippians, where we get this whole section where, you know, it says, you know, but have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so... You've even got the word servant there. <laughs> it's a clear... Yes. Yeah, totally. And, and, and so I think here is Paul just giving the straight theology that we get in the narration and teaching of Jesus in, uh, in Matthew here of this by by him himself suffering and being obedient uh, to the will of his father, he is then, you know, it's therefore, it's because of that, that then he is highly exalted and made the king over everything. Yeah, there's like, there's that word, therefore. (laughs) Therefore, God is, you know, why did God exalt him? Because he humbled himself. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, There's another one of those reversal statements. (laughs) Uh, Somewhere in the Gospels. but yeah, it's so awesome. And I love this idea of Jesus being the one who initiates, like he empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. Yes. Because sometimes when, um, <laughs> this is a little maybe of a tangent, but you know how like pastors will talk about servant leadership and they're usually talking about like husbands, <laughs> right? Like how husbands <laughs> ought to behave toward their wives. And look, like there's absolutely a lot of good things to be said for that, that point. But sometimes it, it, comes across as like you should allow yourself to be you know i don't know like i think a husband being a servant leader looks like taking leadership and and you know wielding authority positively not being a domineering husband not being a domineering father it looks like taking charge of things and being the one who gets things done you know like i don't know sometimes servant leadership makes it it sounds passive like you're supposed to be a passive doormat and and not you know make things happen in your household um but i would say jesus's servant leadership is 
a position of absolute total self-control and strength. There's no weakness here except for his what he chooses as weakness, you know. So like yes. so and and I'm thinking of John 10:18 here when Jesus says I love this verse, by the way. Sorry, I'm going to get super like passionate about it. Yeah. No one takes my life no, from me, it. but I lay it down of my own accord. Right. It's it's Jesus is insistent. Like, why am I going to go hang on a Roman cross? Because I say so. <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm submissive to my father yeah. who says so. And my will is united with him. And we are in this together. The Romans have no say here. I am God and I am in charge. <laughs> So I just love that, right? Um, he tells Peter when he's being arrested, I can call down legions of angels to come destroy these people who are arresting me. Look, I don't need you. I don't need your dinky sword, Peter. Like, I, <laughs> like I got this, except I, I want to be arrested because this is why I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is in total right. control here. This is not passive uh, weakness. This is self-control and humility, which are very different things. <laughs> you know, um, turning the other cheek. That's not weakness. That's self-control. Right. That's, <laughs> I mean, right. it, it might make you feel weak. There's, it certainly could look that way, but in your soul, if you're the sort of person who turns the other cheek, you're the most powerful person in that circumstance, spiritually speaking. So I don't know. That's, that's kind of my little tangent on that, but I, I just, the, I don't want this to come across as like a, um, you know, the, the rulers of this age wield power, so you should be a wimp. <laughs> See, not at all yeah. what's being said here. Um, so, and, and particularly being passive is not the idea. Uh, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's not exactly giving in per se. Cause again, that's sort of this, I don't know. It, it's, it's not compromising. It's, yeah. I, Hmm. I'm not sure I had a thought there, but well, no, I, just... I agree with you. Um, even though you don't know if you had a thought, I think I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about this, dude? I love this part. Okay, so Jesus tells them the, right. the 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 mom uh, of Zebedee's sons is like, "Hey, you know, I want one of my sons at your right and one of your sons at your left." And I just love that later Matthew is careful to point out in the crucifixion narrative that there's a robber on his right and on his left. And I can't, I have to think that's not an accident. Oh, oh, that's really good. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like Jesus is like, okay, I, I'm telling you, you don't get to, you know, my father chooses who sits at my right or my left. <laughs> yes. No, 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 totally. And, and particularly because you see all of these uh, in the passion narrative, you, you, you see all of these like reversals of like, coronation and kingship where it's like you know what happens to jesus but the soldiers they like twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and you know they put a robe on him and, and for the soldiers it's this like mocking thing but the way that it comes across in the narrative is it's like you know jesus is being crowned and robed and marched through the the city to like take his throne is like but but kind of in this weird reversed way of you know the way that it's told there of it it looks on the outside like he is being defeated and mocked when really he is like triumphantly marching to his victory. And so so I love that of of that then, you know, as he ascends, you know, onto the cross that he like takes his seat and at his right and his left hand. Oh, that is that is <laughs> dude, an awesome connection. Dude, yeah. Some um some brilliant artist or like a uh, movie maker, like if we if such a thing existed as good Christian movies, um 
like could really <laughs> do a good artistic piece on like the fact that Jesus's crucifixion is almost like his coronation, you know, like, yes. and the, I think, uh, I think Matthew records the fact that they put the sign, they nail the sign on the cross that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Right. <laughs> it's just like, and yes. they're mocking him. They think it's funny. Right. <laughs> it's, and, and Jesus yeah, is yeah. like, well, no, this is how I destroy you. Right. This is how I destroy right. everything you stand for. <laughs> This is how I reign triumphant and purchase my bride with my blood, you know. Yeah. And these people at my right or left, they're not the triumphant, you know, disciples who will desert me in my moment of weakness. They are thieves and criminals, one of whom will be in my kingdom with me, you know. Yeah. Although Luke is the one who records that, not Matthew. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself there. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think I think that's definitely, yeah, Jesus comes to become, he, he becomes king through his death. Um, and that's why God exalts him. And this is sort of the moment of his triumph is, is bleeding and suffocating on a cross next to criminals being jeered at by, by people. His mother watches him die. <laughs> um, so yeah. Right. Well, yes. Yeah, no. And, and, and even that the, even in there is the seeds of the reversal too, of the, like the last shall be first of, you know, it's, it's not the triumphant disciples who are at his right and his left hand, but you know, who is lower in society than the condemned criminal who's being crucified outside the town, right? And, you know, but they are the ones who are, in a sense, made first, being put at, exalted at Christ's right and left hand. Yeah. Well, dude, we're writing a really good Christian movie. Too bad we're, um, <laughs> I, like, I, I, I'm serious. I, I don't, I actually have not seen Passion of the Christ. I wonder if Mel Gibson, uh, had any, had any of that stuff in there, um, you know, maybe I shouldn't speak too soon. Uh, I don't, I don't remember it, but <laughs> it's supposed to be a great I'm... movie. So, you know, there's our one good Christian movie. <laughs> uh, there we go. Moving on, though. <laughs> um, I just, yeah. So, well, it's hard to go wrong with the passion. I mean, unless you're like Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> the theologically accurate Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Oh man! If only they could get the theology and the music. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so you got you know the ten are indignant with these two, right? There, there's sort of a conflict that arises here. It doesn't get super specific, but I imagine they're just upset because the others are trying to, like, <clears throat> you know, shortcut to the front of the line here, right? They're even like kind of having their yeah, mom yeah, yeah, involved yeah. in the whole thing, which is just unfair. <laughs> You know, yeah, they're pulling the mob card. Right. They're hoping Jesus will be a real softy. You know, oh, she's such a sweet lady. Uh, maybe I'll say yes. You know, but she he, just looking out for her two boys. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is kind of a sweet scene. Like, I, I like, I like their mom. Like, I think, I think she's a sweet, mm -hmm. a sweet gal here. I wish we knew more, honestly, about some of these minor Bible characters. Um, but yeah. yeah, so like the, <laughs> unfortunately though, it provokes a little bit of a debate among the disciples. Um, but uh, we, we, we kind of already alluded to the fact that Jesus doesn't really rebuke them. He actually encourages them. <laughs> and, you know, okay, yeah, how yeah. do you become the greatest? Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's almost like he's encouraging a little bit of friendly competition among them. Like Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another and showing honor. You know, it's almost like a little bit of, okay, mm -hmm. well, fine. You can fight it out to be the best, but just don't do it this way. Um, I, I don't know. That's the way I read it. A little bit of banter. <laughs> so yeah no totally well so so we've talked a lot about um this idea of you know the first shall be last or you know 
to be great, you must make yourself the servant of all. And the um, I'm sort of paraphrasing a couple verses together with that, but you you know, so this is great discussion that we're getting from Matthew. But are there like other places in the New Testament, or maybe other categories where we see this same kind of principle of of not just the category of like those who are in a lower position will be in a higher position, but this like active call to place yourself lower that you might be higher, if that makes sense. So like, do we, do we have other categories for that in the New Testament? Totally we do. Um, and I'm thinking of the passages that, you know, command certain groups of people to submit to or to obey other groups of people of which there's a few. Um, and I picked three that are like simple. I mean, slaves are, are called to submit to their masters. That's a whole difficult topic to get into. We could do a whole episode on slavery in the New Testament. I decided to leave that out of this episode for the sake of simplicity, even though it's in slavery's a theme of the passage, but I just don't want to get down the rabbit trail of, of <laughs> like the historical context of slavery in the New Testament. I don't actually think we need that to prove our point today. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's one we need to have a little bit more care handling. Absolutely. Uh, so, so I think there's three groups of people who I think can be, uh, can be paralleled to this. Um, and I, I'm thinking of, you know, wives c- commanded to submit to their husbands, children commanded to obey their parents in everything and church members uh, commanded to submit to the authority of the elders of their church. And that last one in particular, I think, is the most relevant for our political topic today. But but first, uh, let's talk about wives. You know, Paul commands in Ephesians 5, not a super popular verse today uh, in 2021, but he commands wives to submit <laughs> to their husbands, uh, which is a term that necessarily implies an authority structure. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> the Greek word, yeah, yeah, the Greek word hypotasso, is used to describe like soldiers like submitting to their their military leadership. That's the word it is. Um, so it doesn't mean like you know uh, consider what your husband says, <laughs> or I mean you know it it includes that, but uh, it does mean submit to. It means obey your mm-hmm. husband. Uh, Peter says in First Peter three he he lifts Sarah up as an example of godly wifehood, and he says that like what was what made her such a godly wife? She obeyed Abraham. So, so that's what Paul is saying. <laughs> Sorry if, if anyone thought otherwise. So maybe we could do an episode on that one too, John. <laughs> yes, yeah. While we're while we're getting into the dangerous waters of politics, why don't we just like crack open all of the divisive is- divisive issues? <laughs> well, so like you know, I could see some like dude bro men, maybe with a cigar in their mouth and like a you know John Calvin is my homeboy T shirt on. Um, I might be describing. I might be describing myself somewhat, uh, but I could I could see some dude bro going like, "Yeah, man, fist bump. It's good to be a man, right? My wife's got to obey me." Yes. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, yeah, yeah, no. But, but what's wrong with that, John? <laughs> well, because I mean, just a few verses later, we get what what's the command to the to the husband in this case? If he's commanded to like, you know, that husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So <laughs> it's like this. Yeah, yeah, great that your wife has to obey, you know, obey you and submit to you. But but dude, like your end of the bargain is like y- you have to like put yourself to death every day to like love and serve her. Congrats, you get to die. Uh with your cigar <laughs> yeah, and your yeah. your dude bro Calvin 
<laughs> you know, t-shirt. And I'm, so, I'm sort of stereotyping some complementarian uh, people here, of which I am one. Sure. Um, but but there's definitely, there could be some issues in the church with men who kind of uh, don't understand this commanded context. Um, so yeah, okay, cool. Uh, so you're in charge of your household and you get to die. Uh, that's that's what we learned about, about wives and husbands. What about children? <laughs> um <laughs> what, are, what are children commanded to do? <laughs> oh, you have your baby on your well, on your belly or whatever your back, so I'll let you. <laughs> yes, they're uh, commanded to obey their parents and everything. Um, uh, you know, I'm uh, reminded that you know that Paul also tells us that you know the uh, you know command to obey your parents. It's the first command with a promise that it may go well with you in the land. <laughs> yeah, it's an important one. So. Yeah, and so again, it's this like necessarily an authority structure to that you are to place yourself under the authority of your parents. Yet, um, I think fathers and mothers also have a whole lot of things laid upon them when it comes to their position of authority. You know, such as fathers do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think that's Ephesians six four. I didn't write it down, but uh, I think that's what verse it is. But yeah, so fathers don't exasperate your children. So, you know, children obey your parents. So what? Parents just get to be authoritarian style tyrants who, you know, make their kids frustrated. And if they don't get straight A's, you know, they get a whipping. Is that what fathers are supposed to do? Um, No, certainly not. Yeah. Having authority means leadership and responsibility, not making demands of people. Uh, And if you think that won't work for your children, good luck with your wife. (laughs) (laughs) it won't work for your children or your wife um because that's not what having authority means in scripture right as we've already looked at (laughs) so what about uh, (laughs) what about church members what are they supposed to do well um they're supposed to submit to the authority of the elders and obey them that's what it says in hebrews 13 this is very clear perhaps a doctrine that is less uh thought about by many because we have we have some very poor theology of the church, I think, in, a, in the American church today. Very poor ecclesiology. But you are called to submit to the elders of your church. You are s- supposed to obey them. Um, mm-hmm. But what are elders supposed to do? <laughs> right. Well, in, in 1 Peter 5, uh, you know, elders are, are, are commanded not to uh, uh, domineer over those that are in their charge. Um, you know, in the example, the or the the language that's often used of of elders is uh, that of like shepherds that they are to shepherd their flock and care for them. And so uh, again, it's it's very much this image of it's it's not like you just get to like beat your sheep and command them to do you know whatever you want and you need to you give me more money and you know pay for my you know jet or something you know no no nonsense like that. But that you are to rather care for your flock. Right. So we've looked at these three. We've looked at like both sides of these equations have responsibilities. The person who is in the lower position should submit and obey, but the person in the higher position also has some pretty grave responsibilities laid upon them. Um, but here's, here's a question that I think we need to start pivoting to so we can actually start talking about politics. And I think the, the relevance of such a question will immediately become obvious to our hearers. Can any of these three positions of authority ever be disregarded or entirely removed on the part of the person in the lower position? Can a wife disregard her husband's authority or remove it? Can a child disregard their parent's authority or entirely remove it? Can a church member 
disregard the authority of their elders, or entirely remove it? I think the answer is yes to all six of those questions. <laughs> so let's look at it. Let's consider it. I think some of these are more obvious than others. So let's take the, a look at the example of a husband. And I think, I think, so disregarding authority would be like a soft means of rebelling against authority. Whereas like removing the authority's presence over your life would be a, a hard method of disregarding authority, right? So there's sort of two, two levels right. here. So what happens if a husband begins leading his family in a sinful direction? I don't know what a good example would be. Perhaps a, a husband is just completely oblivious to the needs of his children. Um, maybe the wife is repeatedly mm -hmm. making requests like, hey, we should, we should do this for our children. Maybe she wants to homeschool the kids, but the dad doesn't want to. And he's not listening to his wife at all. He's not taking her input into account, which he's supposed to do, by the way. <laughs> you know, right. not, not the dude, bro. That's, that's what we've established. Right? Yeah. So I don't know what, yeah. there's plenty yeah, the, of... This, this is the dude, bro, who would do this thing. This is not a husband who's abdicating his authority. This is a husband who's wielding his authority improperly. He's not taking care of the family the way he ought to. Perhaps he's not very right. consistent in his church attendance and the wife has to grab the kids and go. I don't know what it is. He's just not leading the family well. Right. So what should a godly wife do in those circumstances? I'm curious what you think. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I guess the thing that I would say is, I mean, she should certainly be, like, encouraging her husband to, like, pursue righteousness and to 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 change his behavior in this, you know, whatever the thing is. You know, he should she should be encouraging him to lead their family in, um, like, righteous paths or to be taking spiritual responsibility and authority and and... Uh, leadership over their family you know she should be praying for him um and you know all, all those things like i like i guess i would say that um and and insofar as she's able i would say that that she should also be seeking to um work good in her family like you're saying of you know if the husband isn't taking the family to church that she should still like i i, I don't think the correct answer to wives submitting to her husband is like, well, hus you know, the husband's not taking us, you know, to church. And so that's him leading us. And so we're, we're not going to go to like church. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't think that makes any sense. Um, that would be the textbook passivity thing we were talking about earlier. That's not, that's not godly submission. Right. That's not godly servant leadership. Yes. Or, that's, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm kind of mixing my categories here, but you get what I'm saying. That's a sinful sort of passivity. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, no, I, so I think it's, it's, incumbent, it's incumbent upon her to take the family to church anyway. And, you know, it's certainly not. Like, what if the husband's, what if the husband's asking her to sin? Like, just lie to your employer. Or something like that. Like, just lie to them. Um, and there's not any sort of weird justification for it. Unusual circumstances. Um, but but something like, just lie. You know? Yeah, well... What should the well, wife I do? Well, I mean, clearly not lie. I mean... It, it, I, I think it's... Well, I guess I, I would say it this way. That I would make the appeal that the wife has is under a higher authority than merely just her husband. So... Amen. you know it's that exactly that ultimately she is under god's authority and so if her husband commands her to do something that christ has forbidden her to do then like there's there is a a higher than there's a higher authority that that she is uh 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 accountable to i guess i'd say it that way 
So I think we're coming on an agreed upon answer to yes for this question. Can a wife disregard <laughs> her husband's authority? Not in a circumstance where her husband has done anything that would justify a divorce, but just in a circumstance where he's asking her to sin. He's leading the family in a way that's not holy or righteous. She is very much able and even uh, perhaps morally obligated, depending on the circumstances, to rebel against her husband's authority. And doing so makes her the godly one. Her husband is in the wrong. Right. I think that's what we're agreeing on. Now, what about this whole, like, this harder option of entirely removing the husband's authority? Well, of course, the wife can do that as well. It's called divorce, and the Bible permits it in certain circumstances. Yep. You know, if the husband's committing adultery on her, she might want to begin the process of separation and divorce, which would typically be a longer process. They probably would not immediately move out the very second that begins, but there would be a process to it. Perhaps they'd be talking to the elders and asking, hey, should I get a divorce or should I reconcile? Which both are, which, I mean... Jesus allows either option um, <laughs> right. in the case of adultery, you know. So that could be an example of, yeah, he's he's not loving me, even though scripture says to love me. He's not holding up his end of the marriage covenant. Therefore, I will abandon the marriage covenant because he abandoned me. Yes, yeah, he's, and that's entirely he has broken our covenant. <laughs> but let's go further. I mean, if a husband's abusing his wife, then the wife needs to immediately prioritize her own safety and perhaps the safety of her children over all other concerns. You're not necessarily at that point sticking around <laughs> to to have a clean exit the way that you might with a divorce. Right. Um, like, at that point, you're prioritizing your safety. He's gone above and beyond committing adultery. So I think, I mean, biblically, it has to be ag agreed upon. Even there are some people who think divorce is never acceptable. Um, but even such people would say that a, a wife can, like, move away from an abusive husband. Like, separate from right. him. Even if she can't remarry. I don't agree with that position at all, by the way. But I'm just saying, I think everybody, <laughs> every Christian, like every Christian would agree that a wife can end her marriage, can remove the husband from the position of authority he has over her. Right. Okay, so what about children? <laughs> can children ever disregard their parents' authority in a godly way? This is a little bit of a tougher question because parents have much more authority over their kids than husbands have over their wives. I mean, it's a very different quality of authority. So, yeah, it's true. You know, and and depending on the age of the child, there are, you know, various options or situations which may be may or may not be available to them. Like, you know, in the case of a four year old, it's like, I mean, really, what are you going to do? But, you know, if you're 14, I, you know, I, I think there's perhaps a very different kind of situation that could happen. True. And, you know, at the young age, the child can't really do anything about it. <laughs> right. Right. So so the, the analogy there would be, uh, you know, Australia right now because they don't have guns and they can't rebel against their government. <laughs> so right, that would, that'd be, that would be the parallel here. Right. Like sucks for the four year old. You know, they don't they don't have any ability to, to really say no to mom and dad and then get their way. And of course, we're talking right. here about ordinary parenting circumstances where the parent actually does know better than the child and isn't an abusive yes. parent is a loving parent in which case the child should always obey their parents because their parents legitimately are always right <laughs> in the sense that <laughs> you know they're going to keep the child from killing themselves accidentally right right so <laughs> so yeah but you know like you said at different ages there can be different justifications for it i certainly don't think that kids need to i don't think the kids are disobeying the command to honor their father and mother if their parents are demanding completely unreasonable things of them when they're like 16 years old, 
<laughs> you know, yeah. like like utterly unreasonable things as the child is trying to emerge into adulthood. And I don't, I'm not a parent of a teenager, so I won't give examples. But I definitely <laughs> think there are there are moments where parents need pushback from their kids, which should look respectful. But I think kids can absolutely argue with their parents respectfully a little bit, like saying, hey, you haven't considered this. You know, obviously, they're not going to put it in super eloquent and intellectual terms like I might right now. But, they're, you know, give them a little bit of pushback and say, like, hey, like, mom, can we just do this? <laughs> I don't think yeah. that's disrespectful necessarily, depending on how it's done. And I think children should feel free to do that in, a, in an open family that, that like, make sure their kids know like, Hey, you're a part of this family. Your input is valued. We're not the dictators here. You know? Right. So those are the soft circumstances, but obviously there's the tragic hard ones. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, just like in the case of, uh, for wives in the case of abuse, I don't think anybody is arguing that like, of course she, she should remove herself from the situation. And in the same way with, with children, it's like in the case of, of various kinds of abuse, that, you know, the parent has abdicated their responsibility for their children. They've, they've violated that responsibility that they have for their kids and that it is the, it is the right thing to remove their authority over their, their kid. Which at a young age requires other adults to do that. Yes. Such as the government, which we'll get to. <clears throat> but, you know... Um, but the point being that, yeah, it, this is a more extreme circumstance, but parents can lose their authority over their children rightly. Uh, I think anyone would agree with that. I know people who grew up and had that circumstance happen to them. They were, you know, adopted. And um, so, so, yeah, there's definitely circumstances where parents can abdicate their authority in such a way by abuse. And yeah. then... Yep. So, yeah. So, I think we say yes to both of these as well, which is not a justification of just kids disobeying their parents but just an, an acknowledgement that parents are sometimes wrong and as the kid gets older he can start he or she can start to establish his own independence from his parents in ways that are not disrespectful um so mm -hmm. okay that being said what about church members can church members yeah. disregard church authority in a soft way yeah in in this case i think um <laughs> I think the answers might be a, like a, a little bit clearer, um, and especially since we've already gone through, uh, you know, the two examples with like wives and children. That I, I, I'm not sure there's anybody who in you know the American church who would argue that church members uh, can't uh, remove themselves from the authority of a pastor. Uh, and in fact, I would say probably we are far too easily prone to wanting to remove ourselves from authority or not even ever placing ourselves under the authority of a, of eldership at a local church uh, <laughs> to that point. Like I, I think we tend to sort of over uh, uh, <laughs> utilize, utilize this case um, here where it's like, Oh, I, you know, I, you know, I don't really like the worship at this church or, you know, it's not the songs that I would want to sing. So we're going to go find a different place or, you know, something like that is uh, probably in, in, over application of this uh, particular situation but you know in the case where you do have a you know an elder or leader who is uh, abusing their position um, you know either in like some kind of like like literal abuse of a of a person of, of actually taking advantage of them or in another like uh uh or you know something that well, we like what about a doctrinal call. sense yes yeah i would like say what probably if the pastor starts saying the trinity is like 
fake or whatever. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's another great example of, of, yes, like abusing their position by teaching false doctrines. Or I would say even, um, uh, especially if it's for like their own personal gain or something like that, where they begin using their position of authority to extort money from their parishioners. Yeah, right now there's a lot of talk about Mars Hill um, because Christianity Today is putting out a podcast about Mark Driscoll's, like, you know, abuses of authority when he was a pastor there. And, you know, what the funny thing is Mark Driscoll, as far as we know, wasn't doing anything like committing adultery or like sexually abusing anyone in his congregation. He was just an absolute jerk. He would fire people because they disagreed with him on anything. He would basically bully people. That's what he was. Um Right. And that is an abdication of authority, one that was so serious that people removed themselves from his authority and blew the whistle. And that was entirely the right thing to do. So, I mean, you know, that's just kind of like a case study. <laughs> so, but like yeah, church members totally. could also well, just like, if it's a milder thing and, but you think it's going to be serious problems down the road, you can just express your concerns to the elders and leave. Like you don't have to do a nuclear yeah. option where you tell the whole church and whistleblow. It could just be like, Hey, right. you guys are drifting in your doctrine and I'm really concerned about it. Here's my concerns. And they say, we don't care about your concerns. And then you're like, okay, I'll go find another church. I remove myself from right. your authority, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. So obviously, yeah, you can disobey well, so your others could... <laughs> in some circumstances. Yeah. Well, so maybe if we can, can summarize a little bit here and, and kind of bring these ideas together, we've, We've looked at a couple of different instances in uh, uh, in Scripture where we see these examples of uh, being in uh, uh, a position of authority or in a position of submission, um, you know, with husbands and wives, children and parents, church members and elders. Uh, and we've seen that while Scripture does give us pretty clear commands that, you know, if you are in the um, the position of authority that you need to dispense that authority righteously, and if you are under authority, it's incumbent upon you to be obedient to that authority, that there's definitely this this case, these cases where if the authority figure is abusing their authority or misusing it or using it unrighteously, that... Perhaps lording it over? Right, yes, yeah, to, to use the biblical language, that the person who is in the position of sub submission is can righteously remove themselves or uh, or reject the authority of the person who is uh, uh, making that abuse. And what's our like stance? Like, why is that the case? I think we, we've been hitting on the fact that earthly authority is a derivative form of authority. God grants it, and it's not ultimate. Yes. And therefore, it can be rescinded by God as well. Yeah. And, and, we can... and in fact, sometimes we are the agents of that rescinding. Yes, exactly. It's like, why, you know, why is it that husbands are in authority? It's because God has established things that way. So ultimately, it is God's authority, which has been delegated to husbands. Similarly, elders have authority. Why is it that case? Because God is the one who has established his church. And so they have authority insofar as God has delegated it to them. And so in that case, if they abdicate their responsibility, that then they are they they no longer have that authority delegated to them from God. Wait, I think now that we're talking about it, I, is there a fourth category that we could possibly <laughs> add here of people who have to submit to other people's authority and the people in authority who may in fact abuse that authority? No, are, are we missing something here, John? No, no, is no, there no. Another point that we can 
No, 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 totally not. We uh, we've covered are we going those are the with three this? examples. <laughs> oh, I mentioned slavery, but that we weren't going to talk about it. Is there anything else in scripture <laughs> where we're called to submit to a particular group of people and you know, perhaps some Christians somewhere take that command way too far and don't interpret it in the broader context of scripture. <laughs> okay, I will save you from this these these questions. Yes, so Christians and and people are commanded in scripture to obey governing authorities. Um, I'm thinking there's examples in Romans 13. Um, we have uh, um, uh, an example in is it Second Peter or is it First Peter? I can never remember which one. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, where we're commanded to um, obey uh, our rulers as well. And so, um, you know, I guess if uh, you you've probably guessed already, listening audience, but we're going to make the argument that this is in the same kind of category that these leaders, and we're even told in these passages, like in Romans thirteen, and and uh, um, uh, you said First Peter two. Uh, yes. Yeah, and in First Peter two, we're told, you know. Like, why is it that we should obey these governing authorities? And we're told it's it's because they have derivative authority given to them by God to be the rulers. Like they're the one, like God's the one who has established them as rulers in these places. And so that is why we should obey them. But we're going to argue that in the same way that is with uh, just as like husbands who have been given delegated authority, that authority can be taken away from them. Similarly, ruling authorities have been given authority from God, but they can also prove themselves to, uh, they can they can abdicate that responsibility. And then it is, in fact, righteous for that authority to be removed from them. Yeah, so, and I think similarly to how there can be the soft disregarding form of authority and the hard removal form of authority, so it is with governments. So what would soft disregarding of authority look like? Well, I can tell you what it looks like in my life, not wearing a freaking mask. (laughs) Because the government has no right to issue such commands. Biblically speaking, it does not. Um, So, you know, just maybe we'll... I did say that we would talk about current events a little bit. Um, (laughs) So we'll talk a little bit about the give unto Caesar passage another week in this series. but As well as Romans 13. as well as Romans 13, but give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, fair enough. But what there's one thing that does not belong to Caesar, we can say quite definitively, and that is the right to determine what belongs to Caesar. <laughs> Caesar does not get to decide what belongs to him and what does not belong to him. And one thing that does not belong to him is any authority over the church's worship. You do not get to lock people out of their churches. Caesar has no right to do that, and God will judge these rulers who lorded over their people this way. All right, off my soapbox. What about, <laughs> what, about, um, what about discarding authority altogether? Well, of course we can do that. This is America, gosh darn it. That's what we did in 1776. Like, yeah, unless, unless <laughs> I mean, you're going to well, <laughs> argue that we never should have done that, it was unrighteous for us to do so, and that we should put ourselves you know, back under the queen. <laughs> uh, we, we used a little bit of tar and feathers and muskets, <laughs> and we obeyed God. Um, and you know, so, and, and, uh, just, just as a little, uh, point here, uh, we get taxed like more than the colonists were taxed by Britain. Uh, just throwing that out there. Uh, <laughs> like right now we do, like, uh, I don't know all the history behind it, but anyways, uh, I'm not going anywhere with that. 
you, you, sh- you sure you don't have a conclusion that you're wanting to draw there, Jeremy? Or? Well, you know, if wives can divorce their husbands under certain circumstances, <laughs> and perhaps I'm, I'm suggesting... <laughs> well, uh, so sorry, all that aside, my, my libertarian streak is coming out. But, um, but yes, I, I think we're going to have to stop there because we don't want to get into Romans 13 and such too much today. We'll have whole episodes on that. Right. But I think what we're trying to highlight here as sort of a foundational thing is there's people who lord it over the non-Christian rulers, lord it over their people. Whereas a Christian sort of ruler would be someone who leads by example, who leads by, you know, inspiration, who leads by servanthood. Um, who is actually a public servant, which is kind of the phrase that gets thrown around for politicians and it's complete garbage and not true. You can you can call them public right servants, but I think their actions will bear out whether they are servants or not. <laughs> By their fruit, you will recognize them. <laughs> See, that's biblical. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's about false teachers, but we, we'll, we'll apply it to uh, <laughs> false politicians as well. Uh, we'll just rip it out of context. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. so, no, no, okay. but there's, so, there's plenty of other places in, in the New Testament that uses the example of fruit trees, uh, you know, as, you know, can, a, can a, uh, a fig tree bear thorns or a thorn bush bear figs? Or I'm totally butchering that James quote there, but. Uh, yeah, can a, salt, can a salt pond yield fresh water yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. James? So, yeah, so we'll talk about all these things. What does it mean to submit to the governing authorities? What, what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Um, but I think this is our way of introduction to the topic. And uh, I would say, here's here's another little point, since we've talked so much about husbands and, and children and wives and elders and all that stuff. You know, these commands, husbands love your wives, elders don't domineer, fathers don't exasperate. The, the commands that are given to the person in the higher position, the position of authority, these aren't just ethical commands. These aren't just, hey, husbands, you ought to do this. They're actually like a guidepost to help us understand what it looks like for these people to abdicate their authority. Mm-hmm. What is it what does it look like for a husband to stop being a a like legitimate husband in the eyes of his wife? Well, if he doesn't love her enough to be faithful to her, that's a good example. If he doesn't love her enough to protect her but instead abuses her, then he's abdicated his authority and he might not be a husband for much longer. Right. And and so the same thing with elders don't domineer. That can be an indication it's time to find a new church. Fathers don't exasperate. I mean, if it's extreme enough of an exasperation, you know, could be could be cause for the child to remove themselves uh, from their authority or have someone remove them from that authority. So these aren't just ethical commands. They are a way for us to understand the obligations of the person in the higher position. And if sufficiently abdicated, then the person in the position of authority may rightly be removed from said position. That's the point we're kind of making with this. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I think that's kind of our our uh, our spiel on the the you know husbands uh, and wives and children mm-hmm. elders stuff. Uh, so let's move on from there. Um, <laughs> we have a case study for you guys in in. Um, what it looks like to be, quote-unquote, the rulers of the Gentiles. Although, ironically, this is actually the <laughs> king of Israel. <laughs> which, From uh, the Old Testament. Right, which, uh, uh, if you know your kings of Israel, means actually probably worse than a lot of the rulers of the Gentiles. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So uh, let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to look at the story of Ahab and Jezebel, who's, you know, if you're looking for any names for your daughter, um, that's yeah, just a, a top pick. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was joking, but <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, don't, don't name your son Ahab, uh, don't name your daughter Jezebel, um, but she's a foreign woman from the nation of Tyre. And so she doesn't respect the God of Israel, but, you know, Ahab, being a just typical Israelite king, decides to marry her anyways. Uh, real gem, yeah. that guy well, was. Real real good ruler. Um. It's true. And I mean, I'm pretty sure Jezebel, doesn't her name literally mean, like, the princess of Baal? Uh, I, th- I think there's some debate over it, but possibly. Oh, okay. I, Interesting. Yeah. Last, that's the last I heard. I, I haven't looked it up or anything. Um, oh, all but, right. But yeah, I think Bell definitely... Sounds like ball. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so let's um let's dive in here. Uh, do do you want to read it, John? And maybe I'll jump in and yeah, yeah, for sure. So thoughts. just <laughs> yes, yeah. Jump in when you when you have commentary that you'd like to make here. Excellent. So uh, we'll start First uh, Kings. Uh, we'll be in chapter twenty one, and uh, we'll just be doing verses one through sixteen here. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Well, give me your vineyard, that I may have a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Okay, already interesting, interesting here. So, Ahab is a very, not a very good king by the standards of the rulers of the Gentiles. He's just, he's offering money for it. It's like, dude, you don't know how to wield power all that effectively, right? You could just take it. Yeah, he's it. like trying to buy it. <laughs> yeah. And, and he even says like, hey, give me your vineyard. And he's like, well, you know, was, you know I guess I could just pay you for it too. <laughs> yeah, he does kind, kind of, of come off as limp-wristed. <laughs> yeah, yep, definitely. In the bad sense. <laughs> yes. Okay, sorry, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so limp-wristed Ahab. Maybe I should uh, uh, give him a, a different voice when I'm reading it. But... Uh, <laughs> But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and would eat no food. <laughs> it's like what a throwing a legit tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolute loser. This is who was ruling Israel. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed and you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? (laughs) So so Jezebel comes from a different nation, and she's like, Oh my gosh, this is a really funny narrative to me, even though it's really tragic. Because it's just like, she's like, Yeah, yeah. This guy is such a wimp. Like, back in Tyre, there wouldn't even... Yeah. He he wouldn't have even said anything. He would have just gone and killed him and taken the vineyard. Like, what's going on, dude? If you're the governor, just go take this stupid field. Like... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Jezebel says, so, you know, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. 
uh, I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Yeah, it's like she's not even batting an eye at it. She's like, this is just what kings do. We lord it over people. Haven't you heard? Jesus said so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what we do. Like, so just, you know, <laughs> right. like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I'm a psychopath or anything. Just go kill him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. So, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived in or lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote the letters and she wrote in the letters, uh, quote, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death, end quote. So, and yeah, the I- men of his city... Oh, oh, sorry. Yes. I was gonna. I was gonna say. Um, notice that there's a false narrative being promoted here. There's a manipulative, yeah. f- fake statement um, that is used to accuse him. And I think that's relevant to point out because when people have positions of power, positions of lording it over, they are often capable of controlling the conversation, and that's a crucial element of understanding politics in the 21st century is manipulation. Um, so I, I'd like to just point that out there. Right. And, and and the thing that sticks out to me about this manipulation is it's two worthless men, which for me, you know, strikes this chord of, you know, in, in God's law, it's, you know, you, you can't condemn somebody except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And, you know, so it's this idea of it's they it's this front of uh, uh, like following God's law of like, hey, look, there's two witnesses that, you know, we condemn you with. Uh, you know, so so it's it's not even just it's like trying to set itself up like justice, um, but is this like twisting of it in kind of this like sick distortion of, of God's justice? Like, oh, yeah, we're obeying the law, right? Like uh, the Supreme Court ruled on it. And it's some like absurd interpretation of the Constitution that literally nobody ever considered until 1972 or whatever like no to, one to pick that. a date out of your the air you know <laughs> <laughs> actually i was doing it randomly but that is a good point um but oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know something that literally nobody had ever argued until recently it's like surprise this is what we all agreed to it's like yeah, it's, yeah you know they went through the proper channels it has a pretense of being of being lawful but it's not you know right so anyways yeah uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing here <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> just me going off on my rants right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah something something interjecting our politics into scripture but uh, anyway anyway uh <laughs> so uh uh so take him out and stone him to death uh and the men of his city that's naboth city the elders and leaders who lived in the city did as jezebel had sent word to them as it is written in the as it was written in the letter that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. The worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, "Naboth cursed God and the king." So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, "Naboth has been stoned; he is dead." As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. Yeah, like, the he refused to give it to you. Like, it's yours. It's yours by right, even though the narrator is clear that it's something that belongs to Naboth's family and lineage. 
God's perspective on it. Yeah, it's their inheritance yeah, from the God. Yeah, like speaking for God, and he says, actually, no, it's Naboth's. It's not Ahab's just because he says it is, right? What Caesar says is Caesar's is not necessarily what is Caesar's. That's the, that's the I guess, the way to throw that passage in there and, and to help us interpret <laughs> this, right? It's like, uh, oh, right. he refused to give it to you. Well, it's not yours. <laughs> mm-hmm. End of discussion as far as the narrator is concerned. Right. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose and arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. All right. Well, that's our passage. What did we learn from that case study? We already highlighted things as we went. Yeah. So it's, it's very much this um, idea of the rulers of the Gentiles, you know, who we see uh, epitomized here in, in Jezebel, who, yeah, like what is, what's the perspective that they have of, uh, uh, like, oh no, just just go take that thing that you want. It's yours. You're the one who's powerful. You're the one who's in charge, and so you can you can just have whatever you want. Let your heart be glad. You can you can just take what you need, you know. Where, um, yeah, and and that being set up against the the narrator who's going to great pains to tell us that like this is totally wicked what what they're doing, you know, highlighting how they are twisting God's law to to set up this like farce of justice. Um, to, uh, uh, you know, to steal uh, Naboth's land. Um, like you're saying as well, that, that the, the narrator tells us that like, no, it's, it's, it's Naboth's inheritance from God. Like this is, God gave this to Naboth. So who is Ahab to take it from him? Right, like the king does not own the property that he has jurisdiction over because he's not supposed to lord it over people. He's not supposed to be an authoritarian tyrant. He's supposed to be the leader of the people of Israel as they go to battle. He's supposed to set an example for the nation, and he instead has gone to a position of total tyranny. And and it is Jezebel, this woman who has seen the way other nations operate, right, who encourages him toward this. You know, it was always in Ahab this whole time. He just had to stop being such a wimp, right? But as, as soon as right. he becomes strong, he doesn't, you know, he's he's enticed to strength by wickedness, right? He, he's running fast to take advantage of people, murder them and take their stuff. Right. Um, and they do it through this, like, yeah, this manipulation of the narrative, appearing just, but, but behind the scenes, it's, it's purely a lie, pure wicked. The whole thing is fake and they know it, right? It's not, it's not a mistake. Um, they know. And uh, such is the nature. Yes, these are these are not well-intentioned rulers who are looking out for the good of their nation. Right. They're, you know, yeah. <laughs> like wicked people who are after their own gain and will lie, cheat, and murder to get what they want. And of course, just like the the first will be last. I mean, later in the narrator uh, in the narrator's story, they get their just desserts. But you know that that goes on too. Two other passages we don't have time for, but uh, just so you know, it has a, a good ending. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> as a righteous yes, ending, yeah. So, but such is the nature of the rulers of the Gentiles. Here is a, a case study in when when uh, God's own people were ruled um, by not just someone who disregarded the law, which many of the kings of Israel and Judah did, but was just a straight up tyrant and murderer. Uh, so, mm-hmm. one of the worst of those kings. It's time for the other meat. Well, so with that case study, as well as some of the biblical work that we were doing earlier, I I think we've achieved our goal that we set out at the beginning of the podcast, and that is to 
lay some of the foundation stones that we're going to build upon for the next couple episodes. Um, we're we're going to be taking some time sort of over the next few episodes to dig in deep on a few other scripture passages that hit on various aspects of politics and theology and kind of how those things fit together. And, and, and I think that we're in a good spot to really begin tackling those tricky to interpret passages that we see, things like Romans 13, uh, 1 Timothy 2. Um, our, uh, I can't remember if we're planning on doing uh, 1 Peter 2 as well. Um, It'll get roped in. I don't think we'll have a specific episode on it, but uh, it's related to Romans 13. So Certainly. But for the time being, I think we should leave the biblical discussion there for the time being, because we're really going to be digging in more to that in future episodes. Uh, but before we do, I, I I think we should transition and maybe take some time to uh, speak, I, I guess, more precisely about how Christians should be thinking about politics and theology and, and how these ideas sort of mesh together in the present day. Because it's, on the one hand, it, it is easy to talk about biblical interpretation, partially because it's, you know, the Bible's really old. And so, you know, it we, we can sort of keep it at arm's length from our lives in, in some respects of talking about what are the duties of leaders of like, oh, yeah, you know, Caesar back in the first century. But I, I think we really need to do the hard work of figuring out how can we take these biblical teachings, these theological ideas, and bring them into the present day and interface them with our life? Because the biblical authors don't pull their punches with respect to talking about politics. And as Christians, I don't think we should pull our punches either when it comes to politics. I think that in all things, we should be bold when we're speaking the truth of the gospel and make application to all of the areas of our life, not just theology and prayer and scripture and family, but also our communities and politics as well. So with that, Jeremy, why don't we take some time here and for the other meet, talk a little bit more about how Christians in the present day should be thinking about politics. Totally. And to immediately kind of jump jump in on what you were saying, like, yeah, we need to, the church as a whole needs to call rulers of, to account for their sin. Um, and needs to lead them toward righteousness and justice. Uh, that We'll talk about that a lot when we look at 1 Timothy 2, where we're commanded to pray for, for kings. Um, but but like also, look at like John the Baptist got beheaded because he called a ruler to account for his sin. And, and so like this is not to say that every Christian needs to care about what's going on in the news. That's not the case at all, but the church as a whole needs people who do. That's kind of the... The, the idea there. So <clears throat> I think that we're leaving the realm of biblical interpretation here for sure, though, and we're going to start talking more in terms of like approaches and philosophy and theology, which I hope are biblically oriented and based, but we're talking about, you know, present circumstances, which require us to give a little bit of our own input, which means we're a little more, I think, prone to be fallible. Um, but nevertheless, I, th I think these are, are informed points we're going to make. We're going to attack five mistakes um, we think Christians make in approaching politics. Not necessarily five like incorrect political opinions, um, because you, you hear those from, from me, at least, anyways, as I go on my rants. Uh, <laughs> but like, approaches. <laughs> yeah, we've, we're up to like 15 or 16 of those already. <laughs> so, so like ways of thinking about politics, like uh, epistemology, we might say, how we think about this topic. <laughs> um so I'll throw the first one out there. Number one uh, mistake Christians make in, in approaching politics. Well, these aren't necessarily 
in any order. This isn't like necessarily worse than the other four. Just the first one we have listed here um, is uh, over spiritualizing or over theologizing theology, <laughs> um, which I'll need to explain <laughs> here a little bit. Um, so there is a tendency mm-hmm. among many, um, well, uh, dude, bro, Calvinist <laughs> people, uh, frankly, <laughs> I mean, like among others, but but including those people a lot, um, of which I am one, uh, <laughs> who tend to use true theological statements in a way that is overly academic, and we might say is overly myopic, and it's failing to consider one's own current moment and context. Um, or, or it's failing to consider non-theological factors, such as like economics, history, politics, of course, um, or science or, or whatever. So, so like using theology in some sort of way that seems as though it is willfully ignorant to the real experiences Christians are having in the world around them. Ordinary Christians, not theology nerds, just people trying to serve Christ. Um, and this is a problem in more than just politics, but I think it really hits right now there's a lot of problems in political thinking among christians because of this tendency so like what are some examples just to make that clear since my my explanation was itself kind of overly academic and myopic uh (laughs) well i would say just as a just as a point here that you know and this isn't just a problem among christians i mean there are plenty of uh cough cough libertarians who are uh, uh excellent at applying libertarian theory uh uh you know to do their best to not actually comment on things that are important to the culture of the Yeah, day. like how the Libertarian Party pretty much didn't say anything in an election year in which complete unbridled authoritarianism came to the entire Western world as a response to COVID and they literally didn't say anything about it. <laughs> yeah, so those kinds of yeah, those yeah, kinds maybe, of maybe that yeah. one there. Um, yeah, so 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 yeah, so like this idea that we can live in, in a fake world of theory instead of the real world around us, uh, which is just, I mean, as Christians, we don't believe in just our spirits and souls. We believe in our bodies. We actually live in a real place and time, mm-hmm. and that matters, you know. So our context matters, and right. Yeah, so so so, <laughs> so 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 can you give us a few examples then, Jeremy? Uh, to kind of help us get our hands on uh, some of these ideas that you're talking about. Totally. So let's say like misunderstanding the doctrine of total depravity, which is the idea that everybody is, you know, um, a slave to sin until they are redeemed by Christ, right? Um, Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So this idea, which is a very theologically true idea, but there is a misunderstanding of this where people will be like, kind of treat all people as though they were equally sinful. And it's a very self-selective, like people will use this sort of misunderstanding when it suits them, but they don't really believe it. I mean, does anyone actually think the the philosopher Plato is like as bad as Stalin was? Does anyone actually think that? Does anyone think that the person down the street who's not a Christian, but who is a nice neighbor and always waves at you when you walk by, does anyone think that person is as bad as, I don't know, Pol Pot or Hitler? No one actually thinks that. No one lives this way. I mean, you know, maybe some Christians do. (laughs) But uh, I think we know intuitively that not all people are equally bad, even though everybody might be enslaved to sin. Those are different ideas. And applied to politics, for example, there is a lot of evangelical Christians, and particularly in this last election season, um, who will like make this claim that like even in this two-party system where you know we might rightly find both of our options evil 
and not like a Christian ruler, there might still be one which is far superior to the other. And, and you'll get this equivocation on a lot of Christian leaders um, whose names rhyme with Jim Heller, um, <laughs> you know, to name names, who think that there is some sort of like sophistic wisdom in saying like, well, you know, both sides have their problems. Uh, you know, on the one side, you have, you know, uh, ripping apart babies two seconds before they exit the birth canal. And on the other side, you have mean tweets. You know, and it's like, I, I probably just, you know, showed all my cards there. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know, this is a, a, a ridiculous and stupid and sophistry. That's what it is. Like, there is obviously a difference between the two parties. They're not both equally bad just because both are full of non-Christians who haven't been redeemed. You know, that, that's, that's simply not the world we actually live in. And usually I find that the people who try to make such claims are partisans themselves on one side of the aisle such as our friend Jim Heller. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's my, there's my statement there. Like, you know, all are, all are sinned, all have sinned rather. Um, not all are equally sinful and, um, you know, and, and yeah. And, and that's not to say that like you have to vote for the one that's better. I, I mean, you know, like I'm a libertarian. Okay. John just joined the libertarian party. I'm not making any sort of argument that <laughs> right. you have to vote for the lesser of two evils. I actually strongly kind of disagree with that. Uh, but I'm just saying that, like, on on the, the pure like level of how do we analyze the politics around us, how do we speak about it publicly? This idea that like they're all bad and and there's no more nuance to it than that. It's it's pure sophistry, in my opinion, uh, callous to the actual experiences of ordinary people. So that being said. Uh, <laughs> What about, um, <laughs> I know, like, sorry, it's, we're going to get some nasty letters on this one. Um, so what about the, well, this, we'll just call this the soapbox episode. And, uh, <laughs> I did say we were leaving the world of biblical interpretation and entering the world of opinion a little more. Um, yeah, it's true. So what about, no, to, and it's great because we usually do such a good job of keeping our opinions to ourselves on this <laughs> podcast. It's, it's great that we're really kind of like, our audience <laughs> letting loose a little so bit. Much, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well so there's there's another example of this that 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 happens um uh, uh i i would say maybe even more often among uh sort of your everyday christian rather than like your christian leader uh and that is kind of this idea of um being being maybe a little too focused on this idea of like our citizenship is in heaven where it's like oh well well that's that's totally true that like you know we are we are in god's kingdom but I, I, you know, if you then use that as justification of like, oh, we shouldn't be involved in politics or, you know, we shouldn't be involved in our um, like trying to affect our communities for positive change or something like that, that we should just sort of keep to ourselves of, um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, there's a phrase of like, you know, being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's like exactly the encapsulation of this of uh, certainly our citizenship is in heaven. But I, I think maybe more precisely, we are agents of God's kingdom living in this world right now. And, you know, God has given us commands for how we are to represent him in this world and what we are to do. And I, you know, that includes trying to affect our communities to bring about God's righteousness. And so I'd say, like, I, I think you should, probably should be, you know, maybe not necessarily super politically involved, but I, I don't think we can abdicate our responsibility for being invested in politics by, you know, sort of appealing to some 
spiritual reality that takes us out of, you know, our everyday experience. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And to make it as stark as possible, if it were within your power to destroy the North Korean government and liberate the people of North Korea, like, and there wasn't any weird um, silver lining to it or whatever, like it was within your power to actually do that. Since James says, whoever knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it is in sin, isn't it then incumbent upon you to liberate the people of North Korea? Like, do you get to say, like, our citizenship is in heaven, like, as some sort of excuse for not, you know, and, and that is a political action that you're making, you know, and that's like the starkest possible yeah, way to put it. Toppling a government. Yeah, <laughs> you're literally like, I, I would say you're actually, it's morally required of you to topple a government. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were in a position to do so, um, and it was like a reasonable position, you didn't have to like, I don't know, sacrifice the lives of 30% of the Americans or whatever, you know, but, um, but like, if it was actually something achievable and reasonable, then yeah, you would do it because it's the right thing to do because you're supposed to do good deeds for people, right? It's just an extension of James command to, you know, that faith without works is dead. Well, some people might be working for good in politics because politics affects the lives of real people. Um, it affects whether they have food to eat. I, again, just look at North Korea, you know. Um, so yeah. So there's a so there's a trolley car that is uh, going running down the trolley tracks uh, out of control, and you stand at a switch gate. On one side of the trolley tracks is Kim Jong Un, and it's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that the United States should uh, look me of all people. I'm not saying that we should go to war with North Korea. I'm simply uh, this is a hypothetical that like you as an individual could like with your diplomacy somehow affect. <laughs> I'm making a very simple example for the purpose of illustrating a point. <laughs> but that aside, uh, for, so so that's the over theologizing, the over spiritualizing, right? This I, this taking a theological concept and removing it from the context around us in a, in a way that seems ignorant to like just the way people are, um, or or as I said, it could be ignorant also to the way like uh, history has gone. I mean, there's been two thousand years of history since the Bible was written, and that's relevant, <laughs> like when it comes to making moral decisions. Um, so, all right, moving on from there, um, what's our second, uh, our second mistake that Christians make? Yeah, I, I think the, the, this, the second mistake that uh, Christians will tend to make is sort of expecting there to be some kind of explicit biblical warrant for every true and necessary belief. So this is like, you know, expecting that you know like oh if if this is a if this is like a good and necessary thing that you should do then point me to the chapter and verse where i have the like didactic command from paul or you know moses or somebody North Korea. telling me to do it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's like <laughs> yeah where like where is the um uh, uh yeah the ex explicit command to do this this good thing now you know or to not do this bad I, thing I, I, right yeah and and I think if um if if people sort of think about the implications of that for a little bit, I I think it's pretty easy to see that it breaks down. Like for instance, the Bible doesn't really give us any explicit command like against abortion per se, but I mean like it, that that that's definitely evil, you know. Or you know, I think there's lots of other uh, aspects of our lives that that interface with the you know that that we can we can definitely apply 
morality to that aren't aren't explicitly talked about in scripture. Like, you know, for instance, I think there's a lot of aspects to running a business that scripture doesn't necessarily give you an explicit command on. Like, sure, there's commands where we're told to, you know, keep equal scales and things like that of being fair and just. But I mean, you know, if you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the like stock option plan that you should offer to your employees or, you you know, something like that, you know, it. I, you, we don't necessarily have an explicit biblical command that tells us how to navigate that situation, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a righteous way to conduct yourself in that situation and a good and necessary thing for you to do. Well, you mentioned like abortion, which I think is, is just so crucial because I think a lot of Christians rightly understand that to be kind of a litmus test for whether someone wants to be a friend of the world or wants to be a friend of God, right? Are you willing to stand up for the rights of the systemically oppressed? In this case, the new, you know, the unborn, right? Um, and the, again, like you said, there is no direct command: don't com- commit abortion. I mean, what we have is scriptural teaching about murder. We have some sparse, minimal statements, kind of on like when life begins and what people are like before birth, but they're not super conclusive. There's there's some that are helpful, but they're not extremely direct. We have to understand, like the world around us. We have to understand the science of like what an abortion actually is in order to combine that with our biblical understanding to understand how evil it is. Like we have to, like there's no way to understand that abortion is sinful unless you understand the world around you. You have to know something other than scripture in order to be faithful to Christ in this very simple and basic way. Um, You know, yeah. and, And frankly, you know, there's a lot of circumstances where women are lied to about what an abortion is. And, and if you, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of anti-abortion pro-life ministries, their whole strategy is to get women to like, see a picture of the unborn, you know, see an ultrasound of of the unborn child. And many choose then to not abort because then they understand what they're doing. Right. And so the whole idea of, of abortion in many cases is to obfuscate what they're, what they're actually doing. But if we know what's going on and we combine it with our scriptural understanding, then it becomes clear. And, you know, Romans 2 talks about this. It says that, you know, Gentiles who don't have the law by nature know the law. And this is this has been developed into a whole field of theology called natural law theology, um, which is a great topic, um, not one to get into in, in detail. But the idea being, you know, that actually the fallen, unregenerate man who doesn't have scripture does know a lot about what is right and wrong. They might not understand who God is. They might not understand how to worship him. Um, They might be confused. And certainly their knowledge is to their judgment and not to their salvation because Christ is the only means of salvation. But nevertheless, the law is written on their hearts. Paul says they show that it's written on their hearts, right? Um, So they know the law. Everyone knows what is right and wrong, but people obfuscate and lie and pretend they're not disobeying it. You know, so, so people do know, do know what's right and wrong and they know by observing the world around them and using the intuition that we have as created beings in God's image. Um, and so I think the reason why this is important to politics, uh, you know, is, is just that you can't, you cannot apply the scriptures to the world around you if you're under this, like, I don't know, this, this silly understanding that like every single thing is going to have explicit warrant. Like, like the Bible's going to settle the debate of like, you know, supply side economics <laughs> versus, uh, versus like Reagan, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> or I, I think I mixed that up. Supply side versus like Keynesianism. You know, like sorry, that's you know, right. Like there are some biblical passages about what is right and wrong to do with money, and we should synthesize those with the findings of you know uh, intelligent people. We should consider what they have to say. And whether it's right or wrong, in the case of economics, it's usually wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, but you know, like it's worth considering the arguments out there and, and coming up with an opinion. And not everybody, you know, it takes some time to do that. Not everybody has the time or the energy for said things. But, but you know, that's all the more reason to not be confidently going around stating your opinions on things you haven't studied. <laughs> and just being good at theology doesn't mean you're good at all those other things. Right. And even more uh, uh, closely connecting to politics, uh, you know, the notion of some kind of like democratic republic with a constitution and separation of powers. And you know, it's like this is utterly foreign to to scripture. Uh, there, there's like nothing even close, closely approximating that in terms of governing structure examples uh, or let alone didactic teaching and scripture uh, uh, as to how government should be organized and structured. And so the idea that we could just like drop in, uh, you, you know, like parachute in a Bible verse to tell us how the Supreme Court should operate or, you know, how the legislator should operate or even like how we should vote is, I, I, I think, very fraught with assumptions about how our world works uh, and how the world of the Bible functioned historically. I think it's it's pretty anachronistic for us to try to read back our political situation onto Scripture. You know, we could say, like, you know, for instance, the, the category of president is not really anything like what the category of Caesar was or the category of some, like, Old Testament biblical king or a judge or like it's a very different kind of role, uh, even if there is some overlap between them. And so it's really, really hard for us to just copy paste um, teaching from scripture without including some knowledge of our own political structure and our own rational thoughts and conclusions into it to figure out how we should act righteously and how we you know, should structure our society. Well, yeah, and like even in this episode, we've applied the talk about the rulers of the Gentiles to, you know, presidents and governors and the Supreme Court today, which I think is very valid on a principle level. But understanding the details of that, that gets tough quickly. Like, that's not easy, even if we might agree that, you know, they shouldn't lord it over people. <laughs> so what does that mean? <laughs> yes. What does that mean in our context? Well, you know, it's... I don't know. What does it look like for a husband to love his wife? Paul doesn't give us a ton of info there. I mean, it probably depends on who your wife is and who you are as a husband <laughs> like, and where you live and what, what is culturally expected of you as a husband. And, you know, like, yeah. I don't think you get to say to your wife, sorry, wife, but, you know, like in the ancient Roman Empire, anniversaries weren't celebrated. So, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about it. And therefore, I'm not going to like you deserve whatever happens. Yep. Yeah. To you. No, no date night for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like what? Like, yeah. It's not in the Bible. So I'm not going to no. like culturally it's expected of you. And if you love your wife as a person who exists in place and time, then you will, you know, uh, acknowledge her on your anniversary. <laughs> at, at least at minimal. Well, hopefully more than just acknowledge. <laughs> and I think kind of what we're hitting at here is that there's an element of like, you know, the more certain you are that the authors of scripture agree with your politics, the less likely it is to be true. 
<laughs> like, the more likely it is that you're just being arrogant, you know? Like, if we were to come on this podcast and say Paul was a libertarian, that'd just be the most idiotic statement. <laughs> I, I would hope that you would just turn this podcast <laughs> off and never listen to it again. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I think the right way to put it is Paul was most certainly not a libertarian. He was a, definitely a, a Christ monarchist. Um, Christo monarchist, we could say, <laughs> but you know, that's as for what Paul thought the Roman empire should be doing. That's a little harder to say, but the point being like pretty much every political philosophy that's alive and well today is something that came about, you know, in the last 300, 400 years, the Greeks thought democracy was just stupid. They thought like, why would anyone do that? You know? Um, so all contemporary ideas about politics really are just that contemporary. And we can't be reading them back into the biblical authors. Paul was not a libertarian, but I am a libertarian because that's the way I understand principles in scripture leading as they combine with my knowledge of the world around me. It's not an objective, ob objectively true way to think. It's like, the way I, as an individual in my context, am applying Christianity the way I see it, you know, and, and like that's the most confident we can get about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that being said, I think I already kind of hit on this. Um, I gave it away a little early, um, but our third mistake Christians make, which is super relevant to today. Um, uh, so don't miss this one. Um, assuming that being knowledgeable uh, about theology or the Bible um, or anything else, you know, makes you competent on other subjects, including politics and its related disciplines, you know? So knowing stuff about the Bible does not make you an expert on economics or history. Um, and a Christian would be better served by reading someone who does know something about those topics than reading you, Mr. Theologian, talking about those topics. Uh, and as I say this, I realize we're, you know, there's an element of hypocrisy here. Although I would say both of us are fairly well read in these topics, but... Well, and, and then again, uh, we also don't purport to be experts in any of these things. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we work pretty hard to be, you know, to communicate that, you know, we're, we are lay people who are sharing our opinions and, you know, invite you as the listening audience to take or leave, you know, what we say. True. And to be totally clear, when I say experts, you know, I, I emphatically do not mean people with PhDs because like it can seriously, I mean, if COVID has taught us anything, it's that the experts have no clue what they're talking about. Sometimes um, it doesn't, it's not that you can't question expertise. I'm just saying that like uh, being well read on a topic um, and having a balanced and um, well-wielded expertise makes you a more important voice to listen to than some random pastor you know, who doesn't know what he's talking about. I think that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of the point I'm making is theology is a different discipline than these other things. And theologians and pastors should be listening to, um, to other people to help inform their understanding. Yeah. And I would actually add to that of, um, you know, if someone does have a PhD, cough, cough, you know, perhaps one of the co-hosts of this uh, podcast, <laughs> you should be very suspicious of them pontificating on things that are not directly related to their PhD. And, you know, pe people get this pretty clearly, I, I, I think, in other contexts where uh, this is like, especially if you are in sort of the, the creationism, uh, uh, you know, sort of debate and apologetics field. I Like, I, I think it's pretty easy for people to identify, yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson, sure, he did some great astrophysics work, but the dude has absolutely terrible philosophy. And like, he, <laughs> like he is not... Like literal freshman in, 101. 
like philosophy. Yeah, like it, <laughs> like like Neil deGrasse Tyson's philosophy is so comically bad that even I know it's bad philosophy, and I'm not even a philosopher. And <laughs> but he sure right, thinks so he's like, right. <laughs> yeah, no, he sure thinks he's right, and he is a very intelligent man, and he totally has a PhD in astrophysics. So it's, it, it, you know, and so I think that that same principle of of just because somebody is really intelligent in one area or really on point in one area, you I, like, if if you know, that doesn't make him an expert in some other area, which I, I think is exactly the point that you were just making, Jeremy. Totally, and you know, there's there's examples like C.S. Lewis. Um, being like one of the greatest Christian authors of all time, but I think his theology was terrible. <laughs> like he had great philosophy, um, but his theology I think was just lame. Um, and then today, like I'll go ahead and throw people under the bus who I really respect on this podcast. Like John Piper <laughs> is one of my favorite like theologians and Christian authors of all time. And every time he writes an article on politics, I'm a terrified to click on it. <laughs> because he just clearly never reads any books related to the topic. He does not know what he is talking about. And he, he's attempting to apply Christian principles in, to something he does not understand. Um, you know, so in the same way that the Christian who understands thou shalt not murder, but doesn't understand what an abortion is, is going to get that wrong. In the same way, if you don't understand anything about like, you know, economics and you try to apply the Bible to it, you're going to be wrong. So that's, you know, that's my little uh, dig on John Piper, who I love and think is a, a, a greater man than I am, but just my honest opinion. Right. Um, and definitely <laughs> read his theology works. Exactly. Um, he has some terrible stuff on like gun guns. You know, he said things to the effect of like, uh, like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Um, one thing that I, I have to point out here is I, I censored Tim Keller's name earlier and somehow I didn't, uh, I didn't do that with John Piper, whom I respect infinitely more. Pon Jiper. <laughs> Pon Jiper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Um, although I guess I just said Tim Keller a second ago. So the bag is out the, the uh, cat's out of the I bag rather. <laughs> we could do it. We could do it like the Babylon Bee and, uh, you know, <laughs> No, Flower I, I bed. Tim Keller's name. <laughs> okay, okay. Jeremy Swingle, name and names. <laughs> so you know, I I ragged on C.S. Lewis and John Piper, despite being some of my favorite human beings ever in the world. Um, you know, I just think when people aren't well read on a given topic, they tend to assume as true whatever they learn by osmosis around them. You know, so that whether that's their culture, just from peers, or from I mean, frankly, public school, that's a lot of the reasons we are having the troubles we're having right now. Just people learn things <clears throat> and they assume them to be true, maybe not even realizing that there's a tremendous amount of debate about it. And it's maybe not obvious whether or not it's true. You know, again, you mentioned the democracies earlier, John, which, you know, that they might be a perfectly good and fine form of government. America sure seems to have had a good run of it. Uh, however, completely apart from scripture, and thought as stupid by most of the greatest thinkers in world history. <laughs> so we have to like, <laughs> yeah, yep. being aware of that helps us reason, you know, that's good to know. You're more likely to avoid uninformed arguments about politics. You know, when, when, when you, when you have an awareness of the, the lay of the land, the various opinions people have and why they have them, you know, uh, there's, it's kind of, we, we've joked about the Ben Shapiro destroying liberals with facts and logic meme before, 
on this on this show. And mm-hmm. um and it's kind of funny because you watch those videos and as much as it's fun to watch Ben Shapiro talking really fast, destroying liberals with facts and logic, these are also like the lowest possible hanging fruit. You know, these are like really stupid and overconfident 19-year-old kids, you know? <laughs> like if Ben Shapiro was talking to Noam Chomsky, this would be a much closer debate. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, Some, he, like, would, he would not be... Leftist. It would not be Ben Shapiro destroys Noam Chomsky with uh, facts and logic. <laughs> Honestly, Noam Chomsky would defeat him, you know, as, if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm being honest, like whether he's right or not, you know, it'd be closer to like Noam Chomsky lightly corrects Ben Shapiro on a few facts and logic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know and, and that's with kindness my... and charity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be a polite debate. There wouldn't be any owning. You know, and and but I think the point is is just to say like whether you're right or wrong, um, being like not being overconfident about things you're not very competent in uh, goes a long way to helping you stay humble um, on your political opinions, right? And uh, just acknowledging the fact that there's some person on the other side of the political aisle that could destroy you with facts and logic. um, You know, even if you're not as stupid as the college students (laughs) in those videos, you know that that'll help. Um, so, and then, uh, uh, point number four that I think that a lot of, uh, um, Christians make the mistake of when they're thinking about politics, and that is that they tend to assume that, uh, political agents and or actors are always acting in good faith. So this is, you know, going back to our, our chuckling about, you know, uh, political leaders being, um, uh, public servants. And, you know, that's, a uh, 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 like a phrase that we use a lot for it, but I, I, I think that there's plenty of examples that we have of our political leaders uh, distinctly not acting in good faith. You know that that I don't think that we necessarily need to make that assumption, or even like I don't think our political leaders a lot of times even deserve us giving them that benefit of the doubt necessarily. And you know, part of the reason why I would argue that is. Like politics, it is this art of obtaining and wielding power. You know, when it comes down to it, the thing that is the government or the state is just kind of whatever organization has managed to maintain a monopoly on force. Like, you know, they're they're the ones who have the military, and so that's why they are the people that we call the government. And so when it comes down to it, like the government, the, you know, our political leaders are, they're the ones who are experts at obtaining and holding this power. And, you know, when you have people in that environment, like, why would we necessarily expect that these are all good faith actors? Um, you know, it's the the old phrase of like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But if we just, you know, maybe bring a little bit more biblical doctrine into that of if we assert that everybody is sinful, um, why would we expect that the people who are gravitated towards positions of wielding power and control are going to be the like less bad of the people? You know, I, I would probably say it's probably more likely that it's going to be the more bad groups of the people who would be gravitating toward these positions of power. And I, I would actually even intensify that. I think it's even bleaker than that. I think it's like psychopaths are really good at manipulating people. That's one of their features. They're they're like they don't care that they're being immoral. They can have a smile on their face while they do it and convince you that they're a Christian. You know, there's many politicians in U.S. history that have done so. Um, they can convince you that they have your best interests at heart. And those are actually the some of the best people at 
at getting political power are those who are the best at convincing people that they deserve it. And the people who are best at convincing others that they deserve power are, there's only two groups. One is people who actually do deserve the power, and, you know, then they are just honest. But the second group of power uh, of people, and I think the far larger one, at least in our present government, is people who are the best at lying and manipulating. And, and I mean, that should be, that should follow, I think, logically from our understanding of human nature. And then I would apply, you know, just looking at the people who rule us and just how mediocre and evil they are. <laughs> as my way of you know coming to that conclusion <laughs> uh but but yeah we should assume until proven otherwise that they mean to damage us and to lie to us and to manipulate to us you know we're not commanded to obey and believe um you know governments over christ and so we should be paying attention to our scriptures and we should be assuming that we might be being lied to particularly in circumstances where the lie would justify a further expansion of government power and we should not be naive about this. Um, and there, there's a lot of people will, will talk about like, you know, oh, well, I disagree with this politician, you know. And, well, I don't know. I don't know that I disagree with them. I don't, I don't know that they actually have an opinion on the matter. Like, you know, who's to say that, uh, you know, the governor of my state even cares at all about political theory? He might just be a tyrant who wants power. Like, you know, maybe there's not a disagreement to be had here. Maybe there's just how do I defend myself? <laughs> like, so I don't know. That's kind of what I'm getting at. And, and it's similar with debating with people who who are maybe so far gone that there's just no hope of a productive conversation. You know, don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs or they might trample you under their feet. <laughs> right? um, so mm -hmm. in the same way, like as, as we're not supposed to do that with the gospel, when it comes to political debate, like you know, like, there are some people who, who just believe things that are insane and the right approach may not be to affirm th like that their position is a valid one to hold or a defensible one on any moral level. Again, I mentioned earlier the, you know, the, the late term abortion where it's like two minutes before the baby would exit the birth canal, you just kill the baby. That's not a position you argue with. That That's a position you, you know, call to repentance, you mock you find a way to perhaps get yourself away from people who would do such things. I mean, there's multiple approaches, but debate certainly cannot be one of them. Mm -hmm. That's just my take. I mean, the prophets of Baal, right? The story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he just mocks them um, as they're like cutting themselves for their God, right? <laughs> and Elijah was a just and righteous man. So I think sometimes that's how we have to deal with that. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, a lot of people kind of almost are there with um, recognizing that politicians are like often not actually interested in the good of their uh, constituents, where it's like, um, you know, like the, the, the trust that the aggregate trust that people have had in politicians has been declining a lot um uh over the last few decades and you know it's it's sort of the you know the if you think about the jokes about different like professions that are you know in our country it's like you know the the ones that people like nobody likes or it's it's lawyers and politicians are the ones of like nobody likes these people um and uh not not that i'm necessarily trying to throw shade on on lawyers per se but the 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 point that i'm trying to make is that um there there definitely is this consciousness of man like 
people tend to really not like politicians. And it's, <laughs> you know, I, I would maybe probe a little bit into that of saying like, well, you know, should we maybe then question these assumptions that we have about what these politicians are actually interested in doing with their positions of power? Where it's like, I think maybe we should trust our instincts a little bit more that, ah, maybe these people aren't trustworthy. Maybe these people aren't actually good people who are trying to do what is right for me. Because that's definitely not the way that I feel about them. So why would I try to, you know, put that intuition aside, you know, with this sort of like, well, frankly, propaganda of telling us that our, you know, good and faithful uh, public servants are out to, you know, do what's best for us. Totally. And if I'm allowed to at least throw perhaps a little bit of um, mild criticism uh, toward toward what, what I'm sure is a large portion of our listener base who would identify as conservative, I think part of, uh, you know, I think it says something that it took conservatives, I don't know, like four or five months uh, after the COVID lockdowns hit to really like turn against them, you know, like it should it should be obvious that once the governors extended these lockdowns past their initial two weeks, which was all it was ever supposed to be at first, I think it should have been obvious to every conservative that at that point it's tyranny, you know, like I, I think and, and now I mean, now in 2021, all pretty much all conservatives are, are agreed on that. But it took a few months and I felt like I was like kind of the only one other than my libertarian friends who were like. Don't you think you might, they might be lying to us about this? Like, look at what they're getting out of it. Look at the power they're gaining. Um, and I was personally cautious of COVID. I, I wasn't going out and doing stuff. I had a newborn at the time. So did John. So, I mean, for me, I, I was cautious about it because I didn't know. But I did have in the back of my mind this whole time, like, this whole thing could be a lie. And, you know, the, the idea that it's scientific to lock everyone in their homes as though that that's going to save people. Um and the whole mask thing, which has pretty definitively statistically been proven to do nothing. Um, like, you know, I, I thought in the back of my mind, I was like, this could, this could be fake, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to be cautious, but I, I don't believe the whole lockdown narrative because I'm skeptical of it. And I think conservatives would have been better served and would have had a lot more time to fight back before it got too bad. Um, if they had been, if they had had those impulses from day one, that's just my little, I'll just put that there, right? <laughs> like skepticism is good. It doesn't mean you're Alex Jones throwing out conspiracy theories about the government. That's not what it's about. Um, mm -hmm. And we could talk for a, a while about why that's also not a, a politically savvy approach. Um, simply that it, it's good to, to be skeptical of sources of authority that aren't God. That's all I'll say. <laughs> that's a good and healthy thing to, to, to have in your, in your mind. So <laughs> and and right there, Jeremy, I think you actually finally landed in <laughs> the place where I, I think maybe we can get some uh, where, where we could actually find some common ground uh, with a lot of people on that. And that is, why would we expect any authority structure that is not the Lord himself to actually be, you know, in like ultimately in our best interest? It's like. Sure, there there are plenty of fathers that do like excellent jobs in their families. But it's like you just have to look at the culture around us and see that there's a there's a lot of bad fathers too and a lot of abusive ones. And so it's it is this authority structure which certainly God is the one that instituted it, and yet there are tons of people who abuse that and do terrible things with it. 
And so by the same token, it's like, why would we expect our, you know, any other institution, including the government, which also is instituted by God, to not be used in the same sort of way? So it's this more like, why why would we necessarily expect to trust any structure that isn't God himself? Definitely. And of course, you know, as we'll get into when we talk about Romans 13, we are supposed to submit to the governing authorities. But I think that the nature of that looks a lot more like you got pulled over for a speeding ticket, just pay the ticket instead of fighting the police officer. <laughs> you know, right. Like, that's it looks a little more like that, uh, which is like disregard this law and there may be a penalty. Right. Um, and then, you know, that's not something worth a stink over. But then there are moments where governments become authoritarian and totalitarian and, and ought to be resisted um, in some circumstances, like, you know, uh, perhaps should be toppled. I, I'm not, you know, I don't know at what point that comes. Um, that's not an easy question for anyone to ask. I mean, North Korea has the right to, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, maybe Australia will soon here. It's <laughs> like the third time I brought Australia, man. It's just like, there's been so much horrible news coming out of there these mm. days. So there's this, uh, this last point and, and this one is, uh, I think a, a really good one to talk about. It's uh, there's two opposite pitfalls that Christians can fall into and, and non-Christians as well. But, uh, particularly, um, for those of us. Uh, who are trying to think about how our faith relates to the public sphere and politics. And th these two opposite pitfalls, on the one side, you have this like idea that, oh, you know, we shouldn't legislate morality. Like the law shouldn't, shouldn't um, reflect Christian morality. That's not what the law is supposed to do. And then on the other extreme, you have this idea that like all sins ought to somehow be a crime. Um, and those are, you know, sin is not the same category as crime. I, I mean, I do think all crimes ought to be sins, um, something that is sinful, but I don't think all, all sins ought to be considered, you know, crimes from the civil ruler's perspective. Uh, so, so let's look at both of these in turn, because I think they're opposite sides of the same, you know, same coin. So first, right. this idea that like all laws, uh, that, that we shouldn't legislate morality. I mean, this is pretty easy to refute. Literally every law ever legislates morality. There's no such thing as a law that doesn't legislate morality. <laughs> that that, that um, is the only thing that law does, is impose a morality. <laughs> yeah, like, the only question is which morality, right? Yeah. Wh what morals is it going to impose? I mean, um, there's no such thing as a perfectly neutral worldview. Um, secular liberal governments are not neutral. They often legislate morality even more than theocratic governments. There's been a lot of jokes on social media <laughs> recently because the, there's the, the Taliban who's you know, taking over Afghanistan as we speak. The Taliban is active on social media. And there's been a lot of people, you know, have been joking like, hey, it sounds like the Taliban is less restrictive than my government right now. <laughs> like they're not imposing like mass mandates and vaccine stuff, you know. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, the, the, the Taliban in certain respects, not all or most respects, but in certain respects, you know, uh, even though they're they're theocrats and they're, they're not Christian, you know, they, they, they in some regards are better than secular liberal uh, Western democracies right now. Uh, so, and obviously that's a joke, but, but the point being, um, the point being that, that there's no neutrality here, uh, and secular liberal governments don't, are not just necessarily trying to do what's best for everybody, Christian and, and Muslim and Jew and non, non-believer and, and all the above. Um, so, and even if we, you know, even in a libertarian framework of law, uh, which most would think is perhaps a little loose, uh, even in that framework of law, like 
it's all based on a moral. Namely, you're not allowed to initiate aggression against people. So you can only use violence defensively um, or as a response to the violence of others. And so even even there, that's morality. I mean, that's the only thing it is. It's just legislating morality. Mm-hmm. So I think we've sufficiently refuted that. <laughs> yeah, no. And so maybe I'll cover then the, the other pitfall that we fall into. And this is the notion that like all crimes or all sins ought to be crimes, which, you know, I... I I think, again, it's another one of those, like, if you actually think about the implications of that for more than a few moments, I think it falls apart. Like, so what what are we going to, like, institute gluttony laws where we're going to be, like, throwing people in jail for eating that second hamburger? Like, it, it, no, it's just like that makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, you know, but even more to the point, if you look at the, you know, we have an example in scripture of a just and good system of law. And that is, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament. This is, you know, the law of Moses. And, you know, and if you look at the law of Moses and the way that it handles different kinds of like civil laws um, and, you know, over against uh, specifying different moralities, you see that there are tons of things that the law of Moses prohibits but then makes like absolutely no provision for like civil ramifications to result from it. So, you, you know, there's, there's, uh, um, I'm thinking of an example here real quick. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. You know, so there are, there are plenty of examples of, uh, you know, so like the law of Moses will tell you that you shouldn't glean or that you shouldn't reap your field, uh, all the way to the edges, but that you should leave like a five, it's it's something like five feet, like a, an edge around your fields uh, so that people, the poor, when they come by, can glean from the edge of your field. You know, but if you read that passage, there's no like it's it's not like the king is going to come by and, you know, measure the length of your gleaning patch on the edge of your field and then levy a fine against you, you know, because you didn't leave enough you know, uh, you know, for the poor to glean, you know, it's not like the priest is going to come by and check in on you or anything like that. There's like absolutely no civil enforcement of this law that's provided in the law of Moses at all. You're just commanded to do it because it's right. And, you know, and, and the implication is that like, well, you're going to be judged by God for whether or not you do this righteous thing or don't do this righteous thing. And so, you know, in that sense, it's like, it doesn't, need to be a crime because God is the one who is going to enact his justice with regard to it. You know, this being over against, you know, there there definitely are examples of where there are civil punishments for things. This is in the case of, you know, things like murder or, you know, something like that where there is actually a capital punishment that's levied against somebody. Or like in the case of theft where you're required to pay restitution. But I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is... um in like the example that we have in scripture of law, there is this differentiation that's made between sins and crimes. And so we should also be careful to make that same differentiation for ourselves as well. Yeah, the law of Moses, um, you know, the, the Hebrew word we translate as law, Torah, um, you know, it doesn't just it doesn't mean like the same thing as the books you see if you walk into a judge's courtroom. You know, it's not the same thing. There are civil penalties attached to things, but it's not a comprehensive like code of law. Um, and, and yeah, it's not like other... a state or city ordinance, right? For sure. And, and there's you know there's a lot of commands in the law of Moses that are actually you know Torah means not just law, but it can mean like doctrine or instruction. And so some laws are not laws in the sense that they carry civil penalties, but in the sense like you said, John, 
that they are morally binding on the Israelite. Um, and that's how they were intended to be understood. And we know that because there weren't civil penalties attached to them in the Torah. Now, I don't, you know, at different points of time in Israelite history, there, there may have been. Um, and, and maybe for some of them, there, there ought to be penalties attached to them, even though the Torah doesn't say so. But, but just recognizing that there is a distinction to be made. Um, and, and so, yeah, some things are sins and, and ought not to be crimes. But what about things that are like, um, I don't know, what would you say about things that are maybe possible um, to legislate against, but, but perhaps immoral or impractical in our current like state, like 21st century America, blasphemy laws. Like I would say, I would think anyone, any Christian trying to impose blasphemy laws on America right now in the 21st century would be out of their mind, even though there is a case to be made from them from the law of Moses, you know? <laughs> so what do you say? Right. With, with civil punishments uh, associated yeah, yeah. with it yes, for blasphemy. False, pro- false so, prophets are stoned. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess one of them that I would say would be, uh, this is another one where there's actually a civil punishment attached, um, but that is um, honoring your father and mother. You know, so this idea of enforcing uh, uh, honoring of your parents. And, and specifically, it's again, like in, in the Law of Moses, you get this penalty for, you know, dishonoring your parents. Like that's also a capital offense. Um, uh, and, you know, we could get into some of the nuances of that. But again, I think it, people would be out of their minds to try to create some kind of uh, uh, civilly enforced honoring of parents in today's culture. Totally. Like, I think to a certain extent, laws have to follow the ethics of the people, at least to some reasonably approximate degree. So like, you know, in the Bible, adultery carries the death penalty. I don't see any way how you implement that in America, even though I would say the law is just because it's in the law mm-hmm. of Moses. I mean, it's more just than any other law that's ever existed. <laughs> you know, like Paul says, the law is, is holy. So, so yeah, so that's a just law, but trying to apply that in 21st century America, where we just, adultery is everywhere. What do you even do? I mean, you'd kill like half the population. <laughs> I don't know what you, you know, I, I just don't know how you practically do that for so many reasons. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and there's, there's similar, there's similar issues with like prohibition, you know, didn't really get rid of alcohol abuse in the 1920s. There are some similarities to that today um, with drug laws, you know, that, that may, you know, that certain uh, other factors have to be considered when it comes to whether we should have laws against them or not. Is this impractical to legislate against? Is this immoral to legislate against, perhaps? Because it would, it would create some sort of scenario, like I described, with, you know, stoning half the people in the country for adultery. Uh, you need repentance of this nation before you can have its laws be Christian this way, I think. Certainly. And, you know, and another thing that I would add on that is even the nature of the civil punishment that's levied for various crimes, you know, and maybe this is uh, too big of a topic for us to crack open now. But, you know, I would say, you know, this this notion that uh, because you violate the law, that then we should like take you and put you in prison for an extended period of time and then like have that be a sentence that follows you in all future job interviews where you know you're now marked as this like felon i it, i i just i don't i don't see how that is a, like a just or holy kind of civil punishment for various kinds of crimes like you know you know, take for example again the law of moses it's if you steal something you have to pay it back. Like that's that's what that's what the law of Moses says. But 
you know, in our contemporary society, it's like you steal something and, you know, what happens? You, you know, if you get caught, you're put in jail and, you know, like, but you don't have to like pay anybody back. So like, how is, how has justice been done if the person who was stolen from is still defrauded and in fact, their tax dollars are being used to pay the living expenses of the person who stole from them? Yeah, well, I mean, man, that's very true. I mean, incarceration is only mentioned in the Bible, um, like as a as a means of punishment. I mean, there's there's holding people in custody is one thing, but incarceration as a sentence of crime is only ever in the Bible as the Romans are doing it to the apostles. <laughs> you know, or, or like it, the Torah does not prescribe that as a method of punishment um, for all the reasons you just stated. It's not actually. Um, you know, meant to restore what the person who was, you know, sinned against uh, uh, lost, you know. So, well, you know, that's a, a topic we could get uh, very passionate about, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'm but, sure. You know. maybe, maybe what I'm hearing from this, Jeremy, is I think maybe our next series we should do should be on uh, God's law. <laughs> well, yeah, I think next episode we'll, we'll be doing um, an eye for an eye. So, oh, uh, that's right. Okay, so we'll get into it a little bit then. Yeah, talk about death penalty and and all that all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I I, I would say um, yeah, there's there's certain things that, uh, and that's not to say by the way that incarceration is automatically a an unchristian method of punishment because there's more going on than just looking at the law of Moses here. Um, simply to say though that like that's one thing we all take for granted as as just part of our legal system, which is by no means obvious from scripture as the just means of, of doing things. And and also we tend to be so arrogant, you know, uh in our in our present day. Like we look at the people of the past and we consider them barbaric for the way they did things. And one thing I, I hear a lot of is like the way I understand it in the Middle Ages, they would do things like if you were caught stealing, they would cut your hand off or something like that. You know? Uh they mm-hmm. do weird things like that that we wouldn't do today. And I've heard, you know, many people say things to the effect of like, wow, I'm so glad we do things different now. And I'm like, I would rather have my hand cut off than spend 10 years of my life in prison. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's way more barbaric for so many reasons. Um, You know, like, I mean, I might, for one, like unsavory things happen in prison. You're more likely to be subjected to violence or rape, you know, like, but beyond that, it's just like man is meant to be free. I would kind of rather you just cut my hand off and and we'd be done with it. I don't know. Like, (laughs) I don't know. That's just my opinion. I I feel like we were so arrogant about, about the way people used to do things when, um, you know, perhaps we don't look at ourselves in the mirror too much and see how our own system of law uh, might not be, you know, up to, up to the standards of God. So, <laughs> and that being said, I, I think we have to finally say this, um, uh, given our present circumstances, you know, if there's a sin that requires some sort of totalitarian state to enforce any laws against it, uh, which is a similar but different question to whether it's impractical to enforce it, um, then that's an issue. And that has to be considered one. And, and one thing I, I, I think one perfect example of this is like, um, uh, there's a conservative commentator I actually like a lot. Uh, his name's Matt Walsh. He's a very uh, hardcore dude, uh, to say the least. But uh, but he, he has <laughs> argued before that like pornography should be illegal and it should be punished. And I'm like, you know, cool. Like, I totally agree that the, the moral law of God has, has something to say about that. But like, dude, the details matter. How are you going like, to do this? Like, like, how in the world are you going to enforce that? 
like the internet, like, you would have to, I don't know, you would have to do things to the way the internet works that would destroy possibly the economy to say nothing of people's ability to speak, you know, to have free speech against, you know, the government. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how you would do that. I, I'm interested to hear the proposal because I agree <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the moral behind it. But I don't, like, dude, that's not an insignificant question. That's maybe the most significant question. How do you propose to do this without destroying any semblance of like human liberty or freedom? Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, so I, I think that that's an important question. <laughs> Certainly. And, you know, and, and that's another one of those, um, you know, maybe again, speaking specifically to our, our uh, listeners who would identify themselves as conservatives, where, um, you know, it was a very popular thing not that many years ago um, on the political right to 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 seek to use um, uh, increasing power of government to enforce uh, conservative values or conservative morals, where, you know, with the winds of political change that switched a lot now and now it is increasingly the values of the political left that are being you know enforced with uh, like the increasing power of the state um and i think there are a lot of conservatives now that sort of see that it's like oh no actually i i really don't like this idea of uh you know this powerful state being used to uh, like take my child away from me and, uh, you know, put them through some gender transition that then I don't have any recourse to like prevent them from doing. And, you know, they, they can like identify like, yeah, no, that that's like, that's like really, really bad. I don't, I don't want that to be done. And, you know, I guess I would say in the same token that it's like, you know, maybe this is then a, an opportunity to examine that and say, well, Maybe if I see that it's like using this totalitarian state to enforce morality, maybe that's just a bad idea to begin with. <laughs> you know, maybe the answer isn't it's like, oh, it's just not the right morality. Maybe the answer is maybe just don't do that one. Yeah, totally. I, I, I can't possibly agree more. And I mean, like, yeah, there's stuff going on right now in politics, which is like laws that George Bush passed in like 2002 or whatever are being used to throw Trump supporters in prison for being present at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, not not people who are attacking police officers, but literally they were just there, you know, and and that's just kind of like, like and they're in solitary confinement. They're literally right now. in solitary. Yeah, I mean, you know, to 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 be entirely clear, I'm not justifying what happened on the 6th, but it's just like. You know, uh, this is obviously a complete, um, a complete political show trial that's going on with these. I, I can't, you know, anyone who doesn't see that, I'm sorry. Um, these are political show trials being used against political dissidents. Um, and it's, they're using laws like the Patriot Act passed by, you know, the, <laughs> a Republican, uh, purportedly conservative president to do it, you know, and at the time said laws were passed, the people speaking out against those laws were progressives not Republicans, not conservatives, you know? So, so it's just interesting how that kind of, it's been 20 years or so, and, and it's definitely come full circle in a very serious way. And, and in a way that is like, you know, really to your point there, John. Um, so I think that's the end of our five points. I think, we've, <laughs> I think we've really put our cards on the table. I mean, I hope that like in all of our specific examples um if you don't agree with us on on something you can at least find that we're trying to like to establish principles um that we can 
that we can use to help us, you know, and I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to offend anybody in, in ways that are unnecessary or not related to the Bible or theology itself. I just think it's helpful to have these examples. Certainly. And it's definitely been a lot of fun to chat with you about this, Jeremy. So, I mean, there's, there's that too. <laughs> sure. If nothing else. <laughs> right. And, you know, I guess I would say that, you know, both me and Jeremy are are reasonable kind of guys who like to have, uh, you know, chats about this stuff. And so, you know, if there's anything that we've said that you, you know, you disagree with or you think maybe there's another perspective on that we haven't considered or something like that, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to write us an email at thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and we'd love to hear your feedback on uh, anything that we've talked about today. Well, we should close with a, a milk, not solid food, don't you think? Yes, please. It's time for milk, not solid food. And to close things off, we're going to loop things back around to our original um, ideas about, you know, those who are exalted and those who are humbled and uh, take in some simple wisdom from James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So let's boast in our lowly position um, as servants of Christ in whatever positions we find ourselves. Um, let's uh, be humble in all circumstances. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological or political rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.